You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 442. listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 10th of September, 2020. Today's episode, a passenger walks onto the wing of a commercial jet in Ukraine saying she's too hot. There are flames outside a charter flight before an emergency landing in Hawaii. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Little Nellie and her friends. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 442 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds, New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. Uh, My name's Captain Jeff. I'm a pilot, a captain at a major legacy carrier based in Atlanta, GA. And joining me from her mobile studio in uh, somewhere in Salt Lake City, Utah, a skydiver, doctor, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated skydiving pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. And yes, somewhere in Salt Lake City is an app description for where I am right now. Okay. In Salt Lake City, somewhere. Somewhere. Here with you guys. (laughs) Okay. Glad to be here. We're happy you're with us as well. And also joining us from... His studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Good evening, Jeff. Good evening, Steph. Uh, Great to be back on the show. Uh, Looking forward to a nice early finish tonight, for me anyway. Yep. We're looking forward to it as well. And we're going to... Pull an audible here. Normally we do this, um, I don't know, somewhere between the news and the feedback on the show. But today we're going to go ahead and do getting to know us right off the bat. And the reason for that is that uh, wherever the heck Steph is in Salt Lake City, uh, she is running out of or depleting her battery uh, on the... um, surface laptop that she's using right now and so we're trying to make sure that we hear from her and understand what she's doing and uh such before she completely runs out of power so i'll keep it brief you know jeff asked earlier today if i had actually remembered to bring a microphone with me and i you know kind of gave him a snarky answer and said of course i'm a professional well this professional did not manage to bring the charger for the surface pro laptop that i'm using to do the show on so I have to say, I am impressed, though, that you brought your, uh, not only did you bring your microphone, but also an uh, an interface 
You, you almost got 100%, Steph. Almost. Almost. <laughs> it was above 50%. It sure. was above 50%. So we got yeah. that going for us. I should probably hit the uh, 50% bell. There we go. So uh, tell so, us then, uh, yeah. while you still have power, what what the heck are you doing in Salt Lake City? I'll keep it brief. I was supposed to be running a race this weekend, a downhill marathon. And they made all these big claims about how, you know, because it was going to be in the mountains and kind of. Uh, remote that they were going to be able to get away with uh, actually having it and they could social distance everyone no problem and then a month ago they went oh no just kidding it's canceled um so okay <laughs> but my my a lot of my family's out here and friends i grew up out here so i kept the trip anyway and i'm here to, to just visit with them and take a couple days off of work um so really nice i missed the huge windstorm they had here two days ago uh, i don't know if you guys heard about that um basically like over 90 mile an hour wind gusts um wow trees down everywhere especially like the northern part of uh, salt lake valley and and just north of salt lake city um so lots of cleanup in progress at the moment but very nice out today it's like 70 something degrees and sunny and it's just going to get hotter through the weekend until uh till i come home um i'm sorry I mean, you may have just said something about it and i may have missed it because i was listening to liz talking sweet oh. things into my ear uh, but nothings. uh did you say that there they, they did get some snow there or not? Uh, there was briefly snow, but that okay. really wasn't. It wasn't so much a. It was a storm without a lot of precipitation, mostly uh, wind. Because like very very high sustained like category two uh, hurricane force winds ooh. for a period of time. Yeah. Not too far away from where you are in uh, uh, in the Rockies and uh, the Denver area. Apparently, they got they got some snow. Yesterday. Oh yeah, there was. I was uh, flying here this morning, and there was plenty of snow in the mountains uh, oh, wow, on the way nice. over. Yeah, it was very pretty. An early uh, ski season, perhaps. Hopefully, and hopefully yeah. they can actually be open. And you know, I don't know. We'll just need uh, helmets with like full face masks, and problem solved. There you go. The, the issue. But um, Steph, did you say the downhill marathon? A, a downhill, yeah. So it uh, it starts all the way up in the mountains, and it finishes down in the valley. So you lose like over 5,000 feet of elevation. Wow. Is that over a bit hard on the miles? calves? I mean, it's very hard on your quads and your shins and your toenails, <laughs> wow. but it's very fast. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. But exercising muscles that don't normally work that way. Well, I'll tell you what I got here. Guts. Well, I was a little bit of a time credit anyway, getting here. I knew we were starting kind of close to the time I was arriving. So I got here, got set up kind of, um, Shoved a bunch of food in my mouth because I was hung. I was really hungry and starving. And then I realized I didn't have any beer, so I had to run down the street to the Whole Foods to get a six pack of beer. And just the down the street and back, I'm like, ugh, elevation. <laughs> Not, used <to> <laughs> Not used to it, right? <laughs> yeah, at least you don't have any humidity, though, right? No, no humidity. Mm -mm. Okay. Very little. Yeah, that's nice. Right. That is very nice. Um, yeah. So other than that, it's been a um, gosh, it was kind of a busy weekend with the holiday. I actually. Did some skydiving. I got a current jumping out of an airplane, so that was fun. Excellent. Um, and then a bunch of flying for the weekend. Now, so. you didn't jump out of the airplane that you were actually piloting at the time, right? I was not piloting it okay. at the time. No, good, there good. was someone else flying it. So, yeah. What, what, it was, one of the uh, jumpers who went, <laughs> I, I, I got a minute. <laughs> I don't know anything about flying. I can do fine. <laughs> I think fine. The vast majority of the, the pilots there have skydiving experience. So, Interesting. Excellent. And I got to um, got to talk with the uh, one uh, one half of opposing bases on frequency for real this ah, week too. Very so good. Was fun. So, mm -hmm. uh, top half or the bottom half? <laughs> mm, I'm not sure how they consider that, but uh, 
<laughs> Maybe the left or the right. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 The, the, the Romeo Hotel half. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Very well, he actually mentioned it in uh, their podcast I, when they recorded on Tuesday. Actually, I heard that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'm thinking, ooh, I already knew that because uh, Steph let us know that uh, she was able to uh, the, the communicate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. Anything else? I don't know. How's going to keep it kind of uh, concise? And I think okay. that covers most of the things. Excellent. Had a very nice Labor Day on the uh, on the water as well. Oh, very very Just nice. Yeah, relaxing. Okay, excellent, Captain mm-hmm. Nick. Uh, have you been shining your balls, sir? Yes, I have. I've been polishing them with a very nice wax, and they look very shiny. <laughs> oh, <now>. I bet. <laughs> and of course, we're talking about the bowling um, balls, right? So you well, call them? we just call them bowls. Bowls, uh, okay. They're not bowling. Bowling bowls are the sort of nine-pin things you get. Yeah, at, uh, okay. Uh, is it ten-pin? Ten-pin. Ten-pin uh, bowls. I don't know. No, I, a I bunch. just bowls. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm in a new club this year, and um, they've you know been uh, very well organized around COVID, so we've they've run their full gambit of competitions and um so i competed in several and uh, came away with some silver so very pleased uh about that uh, with yeah. another fine chap won the uh men's oh thank you very much yeah i mean you're won like the, the grand pairs. champion or something like that right yeah they the men's singles is considered the club champion and i was lucky enough to beat their last year's winner uh in a very tight match actually it was down to um, first to 21, so he had 20, I had 19, uh, and um, so I, if I hadn't have won the last end by two shots, uh, he would have got in there. But um, no, it was good, uh, and a very nice club, so I'm pleased I joined. So, uh, and I'm sure that the person that you beat last year's champion, I'm sure he's very happy that you're there. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah, he, he is actually a very nice player. So, uh, and but he's a lot younger than me. So, uh, you know, he's he's, he's a good bowler, uh-huh. and I'm, I say that with all humility. Yes, as he takes away the trophy. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yes. Yeah, I don't even see your name on this, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so not only uh, did you do spectacularly with your, um, your bowling skills, uh, but you also had a special day on, uh, what, yesterday? Uh, I, it was, yeah. I became an old age pensioner. So uh-huh. now I'm really uh, an old pilot. So uh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it, it was my 66, so I'm... Two thirds of the beast. Okay. You I mean? oh, yes, I do see that. Yes. Now, I've only got all, two sixes, not three. It's all, <laughs> not three. It's all uh, actually <laughs> making a lot of sense when you think about it. Now that I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. okay. I, and uh, so I was just thinking about, uh, um, you know, flying career, etc. And uh, and I was wondering how many times I'd actually flown on my birthday. Uh, and so I, I took a little time, went back into the logbook, and I found out the first time that I flew on my birthday was in 1973 when I was flying solo uh, out of uh, RAF Tangmere in Whiskey Echo 987, and the flight lasted a full nine minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I was particularly bad, hmm. but because I was in a glider, uh, winch launch, and there wasn't a lot of uh, you know lift around. So I, uh, you know, I just 
did a, uh, a few turns in a thermal and then came back. So Only nine minutes. That That's was, almost a little bit embarrassing, really. But. Well, most of the flights are about three minutes, if you think about it. Oh, but, uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, modern gliders. Only oh, get we're talking about, about flying uh, now. Okay, I got you. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> wow. Steph, speak to him. I, yeah, uh, I'm Liz, taking notes. Liz, shout in his ear. <laughs> well, Liz, Liz is laughing in my ear is what she's yeah, doing. Yeah, very good. Very good. So that was back in 1973, so that kind of dates me a little. Yeah. Uh, 1980, I was able on my birthday with Bonzo in the back seat, a great old friend of mine, uh, and we intercepted two uh, Bear Deltas that day, mm. uh, did two hours 20, um, did various other trips in the Air Force. Uh, in uh, I did a couple in Australia where I was uh, flying in 88. I flew an F-18 uh, out of uh, Malaysia. I was uh, um, temporarily based at uh, Royal Malaysian Air Force Base Butterworth, and we were on an air defense exercise. And I remember because they had an Australian fighter controller, which is just the military version of an air traffic controller, except they try and put aircraft together rather than keep them apart. <laughs> um, and uh, he'd been controlling us uh, uh, most of the afternoon. And as we headed back, he uh, came up on guard and shouted, um, Nick, this is God on guard. Happy birthday. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I got I got a happy birthday from God, which I thought was you know, extremely you, nice. Not many people can say I was going to say, say not many people can say that. Exactly. And I didn't know God kept guard frequency open for <laughs> himself whenever he wanted. And then uh, I, I did a couple of um, uh, A340 trips, uh, to uh, Johannesburg and a couple of Miamis on my birthday. So uh, all in, all told, I've spent more than 38 hours and 24 minutes airborne on my birthday. And considering wow. your birthday, birthday only lasts 24 hours, I'm just going, well, I, just that, can you do that? But apparently <laughs> sure. you can. You have sure. more than one birthday. Uh, that's yeah. probably true. Yeah. So well, you interesting facts. Yeah. I can't, I can't top that. Not that I'm trying to, um, <laughs> but <laughs> interesting fact that I earned my private pilot certificate on my birthday. Oh, nice. nice. Nine years ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. excellent. Wow. When you were 11. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was they, just they had to make an exception for me. But <laughs> usually it's, uh, you know, 17, but. Well, that's brilliant. Very cool. Anyway, that, that's been my uh, my week. I would have a nice uh, new birthday present to show you, but sadly, Canon have uh, not been able to produce enough uh, Canon R5 cameras. Uh, so uh, that was going to be my birthday gift to, uh, from Jilly, but uh, they're none to be had right now because hmm. you know there there are very few available anywhere in the world. So if you've bought one, you're very lucky. I can't get older one. Well, when you do, it'll be a nice belated birthday gift. It right? will. Absolutely. Yeah. Very nice. How about you anyway, Jeff? Well, um, I'm not looking for the Canon A5 or whatever you called it, R5. Um, but uh, yeah, not not a heck of a lot going on, actually. Um, I've been a uh, Class B bachelor here in the house. My wife and youngest daughter went to the beach, Hilton Head Island. They're going to be coming back tomorrow. So it's been uh, interesting having the house to myself this week. And uh, I guess um, I'll be scrambling to try to clean things up and make it look like, you know, nothing happened while they were gone. 
Um, whatever that means. Um, let's see. Yeah, not not uh, not a lot actually. Uh, it was a very quiet Labor Day for me. Didn't get to spend any time in the lake because there is no lake here, at least at my house. Um, but I do get to meet up with one of the APG community members tomorrow at the Atlanta International Airport. Greg uh, Peterson, uh, the big ass fan company guy, uh, yeah. is going to be going through Atlanta, I think on the way out to Los Angeles to do some plane spotting uh, with some friends. And so I'm going to meet up with him and have some coffee and uh, get to chat with him for a bit before he heads off for. LA and well, that'll be nice. Yeah. And then also tomorrow uh, is the 19th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. I think if I did my math correctly. And uh, so, um, you know, that's something that we should all think about. And maybe next year we can do something special for the 20th anniversary mm-hmm. of September 11th. We'll probably start thinking about that soon. Yeah, I wonder if it's worth putting together a special plane tail or something. I think it might be, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, another person that is uh, close to our hearts, um, Colonel Jeff, you know, and uh, Steph and I got a chance to uh, be on his last two flights of his airline career. He celebrated his 65th birthday on, uh, what was it, Saturday, I think, the 5th of September. So happy birthday again, Colonel Jeff. And uh, yeah, that's and I thought of Colonel Jeff because of the fact that he sent that letter in about September 11th, many, many, mm-hmm. many years ago. And so perhaps that can be part of that um, episode as well. We'll reread the letter that uh, Jeff sends out every year. And that is all that I can think of. We are doing the show again as a two-parter. So later in the show... Uh, after the plain tale, we'll uh, sort of wrap up part one, and then we'll be hopefully talking with Miami Rick uh, somewhere in Korea again. So uh, there you go. And with that, I think it's good time for us to head on over to the coffee fund. What do you think? Absolutely. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. The Coffee Fund, that's the Jeff Smith, uh, who did the uh, APG theme song for the show, and he recorded the special version of the Java Jive for us as well. Uh, he's singing about coffee because that's what we call the ah, the thing, the mechanism that uh, folks can support us financially. You'll note that we don't have any ads on the show, and that's because we are supported by the community on a value-for-value value kind of a proposition. And uh, so if you get value from the show, please consider uh, sending us some value in return, if you don't mind. And uh, a couple different ways you can do that. One is the Coffee Fund Classic Method, and Mazuts Karim um, sent us another uh, nice uh, donation via the Classic Method. And we also have um, a Patreon or Patreon account, patreon.com slash airline pilot guy. And 
That's a way you can kind of pledge a certain amount per episode. And since the last show, Ham Radio Jim, you've heard of him because he sends us a lot of feedback. He increased his Patreon level to executive producer. So thank you very much, Ham Radio Jim, for that. If you want to learn more about the Coffee Fund, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. Status report on the battery level stuff. Oh, you're muted. There's not enough for a microphone to work. (laughs) It's not good. Okay. Well, is there anything here on the news you would like for us to cover first? You know what? Since you're still here with us, barely. Let's go to E. Um, Let's start off with this. Um. The uh, little bit of setup here, this is some video that we're going to play that is taken from inside a Cessna 172M Skyhawk on the 24th of August, and it it occurred at uh, Toronto's Buttonville Municipal Airport, um, Charlie Yankee Kilo Zulu, Ontario, Canada, not far from where Liz lives. And now, why don't we play the video? Yeah, so you must, if you're listening to the audio version, um, look in the show notes for this. You may have already already seen this uh, YouTube video, Uh, and uh, the student pilot was doing some circuits, uh, some practice touch and goes, and he touched down. Looked like a pretty decent landing to me, Um, and then the airplane started to kind of drift a little bit to the left, and... What would the normal reaction be, Steph, if the airplane started drifting a little bit left of center line on your landing rollout? Yeah, you know, you'd correct that with rudder. Yeah, a little bit of right rudder? A little bit of right rudder. Yeah. And then, um, uh, I don't, it doesn't look to me like he did that. Um, or maybe he did and then put well, way too much. I think he did and he never not, <laughs> took it out. I think he never stopped putting in right rudder. And then also, yeah. Or maybe, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and they put, is, put the power. Is there a chance he dabbed the brakes as well? He might have, he might have grabbed the brake on that right yeah, side. Yeah, as it pushing the right rudder forward, yeah. he might have pushed on the brake and spun the aircraft quite hard to the right. But, but yeah. at the same time, he reached for the throttle um, control. That, it almost seemed like he was just going through the motion of doing the touch and go, right? So you touch down, you know, you're, and then you go again. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, you push the power forward all the way in, right? Which is yep. like full forward, like, full go. power. Yep. And and then I'm thinking, well, maybe he's thinking, okay, this is a box landing, so I'll just get this thing up in the air and fly away, and I'll I'll give this another try. Uh, but it it didn't work out that way. Uh, the airplane continued to uh, instead of going off to the left side, it went pretty rapidly, as, as Steph said, off to the right, 
and then you can see it going over some grass and some bumps uh, between the runway and the taxiway. It looks like it probably went over a taxiway. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the airport diagram. And then back down, and then all of a sudden you're starting to see some hangars coming into view in the distance and then rapidly approaching one of the hangars. And the one of the interesting things, and, and I, I don't mean to make fun of it um, or make light of it, because, you know, when you're new to flying, sometimes it's hard to kind of, you know, we all remember first time we're in an airplane and we're trying to taxi the airplane, you know, we automatically with the control yoke start turning it like a steering wheel. <laughs> well, that's not the way you steer an airplane on the ground. You use your rudder pedals, especially this this particular type of airplane. And um, and and he was like, he had it full, full to the right, hard over to the right. In fact, toward the end, before he hits the hangar, he actually grabs it with his other hand. So both hands full, I don't know, full to deflection. The left, to the right? No, Which to I the right. He was, to the right. Yeah, oh, to okay. the right. And, um, you like know, trying, trying to get it. Yeah, try not to hit the hangar. And, uh, of course, he, he did hit the hangar. Now, miraculously... Uh, he only had minor injuries. Now that I can't say the same for the airplane or the hangar. Um, probably the hangar did okay, but the airplane was, I think was pretty much substantially damaged and probably will have to be a write-off, but, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't think he ever took his, um, hand off the throttle full forward either though. Uh, he did. Um, did he? Okay. Yeah. Eventually when he put both hands he did. on the, on yeah, the let, let's, oh, yeah, let's yeah, watch yeah. it one more but time. Did he ever, let's, did he ever, he never pulled back on the He line. never pulled it back. Okay. Yeah. And then you can unmute yourself if you want to say something while we're watching this. Okay. Um, so he's got his hand That's on the throttle. I'm hearing a little squealing because yep. I'm thinking that might be the right brake. The brakes are scrubbing. And he's got full power. And so he yeah, did actually, kind of reach yeah. up again, and I thought I thought maybe he reached up to pull the power off, but no, he just reached up to push it, make sure it was all the way in. I think toward the end. I'm gonna make this thing fly. Yeah, it never did. No. <laughs> but I agree with you, Nick. I think I do hear brakes there, or it's like squealing. Like, yeah, I just thought it was like just the, because it was such a, a sharp turn Could to the right. That it was just like the tires just scrubbing on the um, on the runway, uh, you know, like yeah. going sideways. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but I do, like you said, Joe, I feel so sorry for him because he's a student, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. Uh, no. Nothing is coming naturally to no. him. He's having to think about every movement he does. And when he gets in a situation where he's it, things are happening too fast and he's probably in a little bit of a panic mode, he's just going back to what comes naturally. And for years, he's flown the car. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve yeah. in the chat room says, or a live audience. So, if you do not turn the yoke like a steering wheel, does that mean that the horn button's not in the middle of the yoke? <laughs> yeah, no, Steve. <laughs> I, it's, like a, it's like a yeah, we all know like a the train or a uh, you know. A <laughs> and I, you know what? I have a feeling that Steve knows the answer to that. He's just trying to be funny. <laughs> but it's pretty funny though. Thank you, Steve, uh, for that. No, yeah. I, feel, I feel bad for this this guy. Yeah, definitely. I'm wondering if that's going to hinder his. Um, confidence and uh his desire to proceed with more flight training i hope i hope that this doesn't affect him too negatively psychologically when i was learning one of our guys because i i did it on a course that was paid for uh it was a scholarship and there were a number of other guys doing the same scholarship at the same flying school and one of us uh uh, one of the guys that smashed the nose wheel on landing 
in the Cessna 150 and buckled it under the fuselage and, of course, broke the prop and probably damaged the engine. Um, and everyone went, Ooh. but, you know, uh, I think if you've got good instructors and they work with the student, they can give you your confidence back and uh, they just make the points we have that, hey, this is a learning process. Not everyone gets it right the first time. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he didn't drive it into a... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy, to be truthful, the guy could so easily have killed himself. Perhaps he... Oh, no. Think, or, I mean, <laughs> anyone else that had been, you know... Oh, yes. Yeah, around. there could have been some old lady passing mm-hmm. the hangar, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah just, I'm trying to remember... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if it was just a little bit to the left, you know, he kind of hit... Uh, kind oh, of the smack corner. the right. yeah. If you hit the corner corner, or even yes. that broad side of the, uh, of the other yeah. side of the hangar, I mean, that would have probably been yeah. a completely different story. Yep, he'd have ended up with that engine in his lap, probably. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think when I was doing my um, private pilot training, the policy was that um, students really weren't supposed to be doing uh, touch and goes solo. So if you were going to be doing practice, uh, anything in the pattern, it was full stop, taxi back. If you didn't have an instructor with you, so yeah, that that rings a bell with me. Although it was many years ago, I I don't. Think yeah, you need to I think they didn't want us, you know, oversaturated with. Okay, you're on the ground, and now you got to get your flaps and your car and your power and maintain center line. You know, that's uh, when you're new. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. You know. Uh, unfortunately, I think we just uh, <laughs> did harm to uh, someone in the live audience's uh, confidence. <laughs> she says, "Whatever." <laughs> Rebecca says, "Whatever aspirations I have ever had to take lessons have just vanished." <laughs> Sorry. Maybe oh, you'll we... be fine while you're taking lessons, Rebecca, because <laughs> there'll be an instructor beside you. Right, right. Just don't ever go solo, okay? <laughs> then you'll be okay. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I'm glad we got that covered before uh, Steph lost all of her power. Um, let's jump up. What do you think, Liz? What would be another good one to do while Steph is still with us? Okay. Let's do. Um, the uh c woman walking onto the airplane wing Um, oh this was steph today wasn't it because she yeah you were flying to oh let's see let's play the video see if we can recognize steph (laughs) okay all right so oh look looks like steph had her hair in a bun all up in in a i've seen i've seen this hairstyle on on stuff before i think yeah um relaxing on the wing yeah because i think she it was kind of hot inside the airplane looks like somebody is trying to get her to come back inside and join the rest of the passengers on the on yeah the we're having lots of fun in here <laughs> so it's a 737 uh they have the overwing exit doors that actually kind of pop up uh and are hinged from the top uh, most uh, um wing overwing exits uh the doors will actually completely come apart and and depending on the airplane either you put it inside and then everybody evacuates or you throw it outside the airplane again i think it it's kind of a model dependent but uh anyways um the article says an overheated mum who decided by the way this is from the sun.co.uk an overheated mum who decided to stroll along a plane's wing to cool off has been blacklisted by fuming officials. Ukraine International Airlines said the woman opened the emergency exit and went on to its wing moments after landing at Kiev uh, after coming in from Turkey. The mom of two strolled along the plane's wing after touchdown 
in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. And uh, let's see. Videos show her uh, casually strolling along the wing before climbing back inside the cabin. A returning holidaymaker told reporters that the aircraft landed and almost all the passengers got off. She walked almost all the way from the tail to the emergency exit row, opened the door, and went out. I guess she was just trying to find a way to cool off. Yeah. Left her children uh, in the uh, in the airplane. So I guess her intent was, you know, to go, to go back into the airplane because she She's left like, her I'm just going to step out here for a moment. Yeah. Someone watch my kids. Yeah. If you don't mind, to <laughs> yeah. keep your eye on them. Like can, like three minutes, tops. They, they can be trouble. It's, it's hot in here, and I'm you know I'm hot. <laughs> you know uh, what are you gonna do? You get hot. You know you gotta. Take so here care was of my them. question, but it says right here: test showed she was neither drunk nor on drugs. Yeah, she was just interesting. Hot. Yeah, um, and uh, apparently um, Ukraine International Airlines said, uh, "Yeah, you're not gonna fly on our airline ever again." Thank you very much. Yep. Mm-hmm. Get a fan, Liz. Get a fan. Yeah, yeah they make them. They're USB oh, those little, rechargeable like, personal, batteries. Personal yeah. ones, like yeah. attached to a little water bottle, so you can like mist yourself. Oh yeah. Your your fellow passengers may not appreciate that on an airplane, but yeah, they probably didn't appreciate what she did either, though, on this no. particular flight. <laughs> so they had doctors look at her, but apparently they failed to get an adequate response for the breach. So. She couldn't properly explain herself, it appears. Hmm. They accused her of setting a poor parental example. <laughs> poor parental example. <laughs> yeah, so, you right. know, she's not the only one. <laughs> kind of putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Kids, exactly. uh, see what your mom just did? Don't do not do that. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. That's, really, that's not the way to go. Not a good idea. All right. Um, let's uh, jump up to A. Uh, this is um, a... Final report, this is from the Aviation Herald, a final report released by the uh, Iranian AIB Era Accident Investigation Board um, on an event that we talked about earlier this year. This occurred on January 27th of this year. Um, McDonnell Douglas MD-83, a Caspian Airlines uh, model or version, uh, performing flight 6936 from Tehran's, uh, how do you pronounce that? Nick, um, uh, Matterabad, Matterabad, uh, no, um, to Mashar, I've lost it. Mashar uh, Iran, I've with lost uh, it. 136 passengers and eight crew, landed on Mashar's runway 13. Landing distance available is 2,695 meters or 8,840 feet. Kind of a typical length of a runway for landing. Uh, it was me- me- Mehrabad. Mehrabad. I, I can't do that. Uh, H R thing, yeah. Mechabad, I think. Okay. Um, let's see. It was about 7.50 local time, uh, but they overran the end of the runway, broke through the airport perimeter fence, and came to a stop on the expressway. About 170. You sound like a cat. <laughs> I, I'll just apologize in advance to anyone who actually knows how to pronounce to that. our Iranian. Or if, you're, if you're from that city. Yeah. Our vast Iranian, Iranian listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we have some there. Uh, Send your feedback to I'm offended. Yes. <laughs> and I'll happy, happily uh, get some staff on that. See if we can yeah, fix yeah, that for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, it, it came to a rest on the uh, expressway. Uh, about 170 meters past the end of the runway with all gear collapsed. The aircraft was evacuated with uh, while emergency services began to respond. Uh, you'll remember when we covered this, we were kind of saying, yeah, they, they're they walking around trying to find baggage claim. <laughs> and 
out there on the on the road. Um, could have gotten a lot worse, and we have talked about incidents where overruns have resulted in not so great uh, endings for uh, passengers and pilots. Uh, but in this case, uh, I don't believe anybody was injured. I have to take a quick look here. But let me read the final report. Um, Aircraft uh, Accident Investigation Board determines that the probable causes of this accident were the pilot's failures below. Uh, poor decision-making for acceptance of the risk of a high-speed landing. An unstabilized approach. Ding, 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 ding. We hear that so often, don't we, on these um, excursions and, and overruns. Here, where's my bell? Okay. Um, poor CRM in the cockpit. And poor judgment in not accomplishing a go-around while performing an unstabilized approach. Uh, contributing factors, loading of five tons of extra fuel, which increased the landing distance required. The decision to make a landing on runway 13 with a tailwind. All these things are starting to stack up, aren't they? Um, inability of the co-pilot, uh, the pilot monitoring to take control of the aircraft and proper action to execute a go-around. Um, the captain had a lot of time um, in his career, 64 years old, uh, air transport pilot license, 18,430 hours total, 7,759 hours on type. He was a pilot flying. The first officer, uh, 28 years old, commercial pilot license, 300 hours total. So not a lot of experience in time uh, was the pilot monitoring. Yeah. I mean, I can see why he didn't uh, take control from the the captain i mean yeah yeah but he, he gained a lot of experience on this very flight <laughs> <laughs> yeah experience that he did not want no to exactly have uh the transcript quoted in the report shows eight eight sync rate gpws ground proximity warning system call outs between 1000 feet and 500 feet above ground eight in that time span wow i didn't even know you could get that many between well, one thousand. Well, they even had one between forty and twenty feet. It yeah. went forty, sink rate twenty. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's no good. Yeah, that's, so good. that's no good. Now, also, before that, uh, below, uh, right around four hundred, they got the sink rate. Pull up, pull up, pull up. Oh God! <laughs> Hello. Hello, what are you yes. doing? <laughs> uh, radar data showed the aircraft at twenty-seven hundred feet MSL uh, at two hundred forty-nine knots over the ground so the uh, elevation of the airport 18 feet so approximately 2700 feet above the ground they were still at basically 250 knots um about three nautical miles before the runway threshold yeah. wow that's yeah no then you should be about we should be at vref already uh, oh yeah and you should be about uh 900 feet mm -hmm. so they're well outside way anything that is vaguely could vaguely be considered a stabilized approach. Exactly. Aircraft touched down nose gear first. Big surprise. Ouch. At, at 171 knots indicated. Again, yeah. the uh, the approach reference was fast. 135. Uh, or 131, actually. Yeah, 40 knots fast. 1,695 meters past the runway threshold. Uh, 1.22 G loading on the uh, nose wheel. That's just not too bad, is it? Just <laughs> I would have expected worse, actually. <laughs> it's just, all he means is it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> the, the average rate of descent in the last thousand feet was 
1,580 feet per minute. Now, most airlines these days will have a stabilized approach criteria saying no more than 1,000 feet per minute uh, at that point. Um, And it should be usually around, what, 700, 800 feet per minute, depending on your speed. Uh, The gear proximity switch went into ground mode briefly into airborne mode before returning to ground mode. A bounce thus was likely. And no injuries occurred. Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, The aircraft, however, received so substantial damage that the AIB assessed the aircraft as destroyed. Yeah, another mad dog bites the dust. So uh, now I I really enjoyed the uh, comments. Again, this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, Savant says, and this is how you bypass customs. And then maybe as good is from uh, Human. Uh, he says, Iran has one of the best pilots of the world, and that's why he could land and say, uh, land safely in the middle of the street without anyone getting hurt or airplane catching fire. Well done. <laughs> I don't th- I don't think this person that made that comment actually was joking around. I think that maybe they thought that this was actually a really really good job. Yeah, very proud of his Iranian piloting heritage or something. I don't know. That's uh, a worry. Yeah, that is a a, a big worry. Um but uh, there you go. So, yeah, uh, unstabilized approaches not good. Yeah. Don't yeah, care. sadly, poor piloting skills uh, seem to be a theme in this week's news. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it does get better. Um, m- maybe, or yeah, as Liz says, or maybe worse. Um, yeah. Why don't we, again, uh, while we still have Steph, um, might be interesting to hear her input as well on this. Uh, item D. Uh, Spanish investigators have detailed an unusual incident in which a Boeing 737-500 crew struggled to control the aircraft after the autopilots failed, even though all the instruments needed to operate the flight remained fully functional. A Lithuanian carrier Klasjet, the aircraft uh, departed Madrid-Barajas for Kaunas, uh, Kaunas on 5 April last year with a captain, I don't know, how do you, is somebody laughing at my pronunciation? No, I just, I'm not sure, to be honest. Okay. Kaunas? I actually looked it up. You know, you can go to several places on YouTube to kind of get people saying the pronunciation. And pretty much every possible way to pronounce this word is is on it. So there's zero standardization of it. No. Just so make I can't, it up. Not really sure exactly. Yeah. Um, and this is like a charter uh, operation, isn't it? I, I'm not sure. I could be wrong. I don't know if it's a scheduled air carrier or a charter. Um, honestly, I don't know class class jet. I'm not sure if that's a, um, scheduled carrier or not, but, uh, anyway, um, let's see. They left off Madrid for that K word city on five April last year with the captain's autopilot inoperative, a situation permitted under minimum equipment list regulations. But the first officer's autopilot also failed some two minutes after takeoff. Spanish investigation authority CIAIAC stresses that the loss of the autopilots did not prevent proceeding with the uh, flight in instrument conditions because all the instruments required to conduct the service were available to the crew at all times. These included the attitude indicator, altimeter, rate of climb indicator, compass, bank indicator, engine instruments, and other systems. So those listening to the show know, you know, if you have an instrument rating or you're working on it or you know anything at all about instrument flying, that uh, those are your basic instrument, you know, references for 
your instrument cross-check. Um, the inquiry also points out that the cockpit crew comprised instrument-rated pilots with considerable experience. In like, quotes. Yeah, in quotes, considerable experience. A captain with 4,300 hours on type, you know, not bad, who also served as an instructor. Hmm. While the first officer had about 2,000 hours. Uh, the investigative authority found that despite this, the pilots experienced, quote, problems operating the aircraft. Although the crew declared an emergency, they did not specify the difficulty. And then there's a little photo here of the uh, track of the airplane. They're all over the place. <laughs> it's really, I mean, we're laughing, but it's really not it, funny. It looks like they traced a roller coaster. Around <laughs> it does look there. like a like, roller what coaster. What are you doing? I'm glad I was not aboard that airplane uh, as a passenger. Uh, investigators detailed the meandering flight path of the 737 after its autopilot failure. Flight data recorder information shows variations in altitude between 4,000 and 5,000 feet shortly before the aircraft, which had departed runway 14 left, started turning north. The pitch began to vary, reaching uh, attitudes as high as 11 degrees nose down. Yikes. Ouch. Huh? Yeah, I guess I mean reaching attitudes as low as 11 mm -hmm. degrees. But in an airliner, you know, you very yeah, rarely see lot. anything more than a one or two degrees below the horizon line in, more, in normal conditions even when you're flying a inst instrument landing system you know precision approach you know your pitch may be right at the horizon line maybe one or two degrees nose above that uh some airplanes like the crj it's going to be a little bit nose low but not 11 degrees come on that's crazy um anyway the crew turned left to intercept madrid's runway 18 left localizer but the inquiry says the turn was too wide unable to complete the intercept from the left and with difficulties maintaining the correct altitude and position with respect to the localizer and glide slope the crew carried out a go around at about 3300 feet the controller asked if they had problems with the speed since he did not know the nature of their emergency but the crew again requested vectors to land says the inquiry after the go around the 737 headed east the north the inquiry states that the aircraft needed to increase altitude as it was operating at 4,400 feet and entering an area with a 6,700 foot minimum. The controller observed that it was not doing so and twice ordered the crew to climb, but the pilots did not carry out this instruction. The aircraft turned left towards the west while changing altitude noticeably, says the inquiry. It began climbing from around 5,000 feet to reach nearly 5,800 feet as it continued to turn to the southwest in preparation for a second approach. It subsequently intercepted the localizer 11 nautical miles out at 4,300 feet, but the pilots had not acquired visual contact with the runway at 8 nautical miles. The crew was still having problems maintaining the ILS localizer and glide slope, says the inquiry. By the time the aircraft reached 2.5 nautical miles distance, the controllers realized, uh, realized it had executed another go-around at around 2,600 feet. Having conducted two failed attempts at landing, the aircraft diverted to Getafe Air Base. It climbed to just over 7,860 feet, its highest point during the whole flight, and then began to descend on a heading for runway 23. While there were minor variations in speed and heading during this descent, the aircraft started to climb again while deviating to the right, according to the flight data recording. It entered a right-hand circle south of the runway at altitudes between 6,688 feet and 6,440 feet, then proceeded to turn north for a right-hand downwind leg before landing on runway 23 about 35 minutes after its departure from Madrid. None of the 57 passengers and eight crew members were injured. 
and the aircraft was undamaged. Although the cockpit voice recorder was retrieved and its data downloaded, it had not captured audio information from the flight. The inquiry has not been able to determine why. <laughs> hmm. hmm. Interesting. Not, not suspicious. Um, the flight data recorder information, though, clearly showed that the crew had considerable problems maintaining basic flight parameters, including altitude, airspeed, and heading, particularly during turns. Um, the problems maintaining the basic flight parameters due to the absence of automatic control systems indicates that neither the decision-making nor the cooperation between the crew were adequate. Uh, poor weather conditions complicated the situation. It adds with turbulence and cloud cover between 2,000 and 4,000 feet around Madrid. This prevented the crew from making a safe visual approach, and they probably did not have the runway in sight. It states the aircraft was diverted, not because the weather was better at Gaddafi, but because air traffic control believed a third landing attempt would pose a safety risk and generate delay. They were watching after themselves and thinking, let's get these people away. Like, we we can't deal with this anymore. Can yeah. you just please go somewhere else and, and fart around for a while? Like, yeah. not here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Classjet carried out its own probe into the event, noting several aspects in its findings, which the Spanish investigators might have addressed with safety recommendations. Given these findings, the inquiry does not believe any further recommendations are necessary. I hope that they recommended that these people not ever fly an airplane with passengers yeah, again. Yeah. Are we sure they had licenses that actually it says it that says they, they did. did and that they had no. uh, what was it? Uh considerable experience in quotes. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why they put a quote. Anytime there's like, quotation like unnecessary marks. quotations, it makes me very yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the what they're trying to say there. I don't know really what it to just say about makes this. Me like cry it's very it's it's scary very it's you know if you have to rely on flying hand flying the aircraft without an autopilot in instrument conditions which is something you should just be prepared to do anyway yeah that's why the faa the ntsb uh, easa and all the safety uh, agencies around the world are always stressing that we as pilots should be practicing our manual flying skills so that guess what if the autopilot doesn't work no problem you fly the airplane like you were you know trained to do mm -hmm. uh however even at a like big major u.s airlines even though you know they they put out memos and say like you know we recommend that you do this when it's appropriate just to keep up your skills uh in my own anecdotal experience has shown that it very rarely happens and that's scary. And for those of you who have listened to the show, know that this is like a an unending thing that I uh, I'm concerned about, actually. Well, and we're still talking about perishable skills here. So if you're not mm -hmm. using and practicing those things, it becomes very difficult to use them when you have to use them. You know, it's one right. thing to practice when appropriate. It's another to be forced into doing something when you haven't even thought about doing it in a long time. And granted, this is probably, you know, if you were going to take a, you know, uh, like a, a slice of the pie of how many pilots are in this kind of condition or situation, um, it's probably a very, very, very small number of people. But I think that sadly it's growing in number as time goes on and our reliance on automation is more and more and more. And even the way we're training people and, you know, I, I've seen it myself in my over 30 years of flying, 
of the emphasis on using automation almost exclusively. Um, you know, from the very beginning, you know, when you were in a simulator, you were mostly hand flying the airplane throughout the entire simulator period. Um, and now it's like they look at you like you're there's something wrong with you if you don't immediately put automation on the airplane. They they kind of emphasize that. Yes, it is one of my well, pet peeves. Yes, <laughs> this, uh, and Liz is asking if that's one of my pet peeves. And yeah, so uh, Neil was asking about it in the uh, chat room too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I I don't know if that's. Well, I'm sure it's being done for for several reasons. One is for um, you know passenger comfort, so mm-hmm. things are a little bit smoother. Um, one is for you know just from an operational standpoint. One is for um, you know really just generally trying to decrease workload for. Pilots that can pay attention to everything that's going on, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, offload a little bit. But yeah, I think then you start to to foster this dependence or reliance on it if that's how you're operating every single time. It is a two edged sword for sure. Yeah, um, and I can see why you know you'd want us to mostly use automation, uh, but you, you can't use it exclusively because. As Steph said, it's a perishable skill, and uh, you have to you have to practice it. But uh, again, I'm yeah, I feel to the sorry for all those seven thirty seven pilots out there who can fly properly, mm-hmm. who see this kind of thing and go, "What? Why are these people getting jobs when mm-hmm. and I'm currently out of work? I I could do their jobs so much better than they're doing." Yeah, it's a worry. It is a worry. And again, if you're out there and you're not a pilot and you're <laughs> at all uh, have anxiety at all about getting on airplanes um, and expecting or thinking that you might kind of experience pilots with this lack of skill. This is a very, very rare thing. So don't worry. This mm-hmm. is most of us know what we're doing and have skills when the automation doesn't work. Uh, but anyway, uh, this was just something that you just look at and shake your head and go, I, I don't know what to say about this really don't know what to say yeah i mean uh, yeah just last thing my view is the pilot skill should be the primary skill set mm-hmm. and the automation is there to back up what the pilots need to do right i don't right. think you're going to get an argument from any of us Steph, on no. that okay and of course you know in, in your world of flying stuff um being a, a newly checked out skydiving pilot how's the automation system on that um kodiak Oh, it's great, actually. The, I, the autopilot works fantastic. Does it? Okay. Yeah, it really does. Um, um, I was kind of saying that with uh, tongue-in-cheek tongue cheek because I thought maybe it, wouldn't, it didn't have an autopilot. But no, no, this, this aircraft oh. actually does, oh, and it okay. actually works. And you could fly an entire jump run on it. But Really? Yeah. Wow. But why? That's, but I bet you all never, don't. No. I mean, only when it's like lunchtime and you're like, I'm going to eat the sandwich here for a few minutes. And, right. Yeah. That's just, a, as we mentioned, it's a tool. You know, there's yeah. a reason, you know, we have the, we're not going to fly and <laughs> Nick's not going to fly a nine hour flight from, uh, you know, Europe to the States, uh, hand flying it, you know, that's crazy unless you had to. And thankfully Nick and people like him have the skills to do that if necessary, if they had to. Yeah. But you don't really want to have to no. sit and nurse an airplane. I mean, yeah, it's pretty tedious just flying Mm-mm. straight and level. It is. All right. Oh, excuse me. Um, More tea, Vicar. 
yeah, why don't we um, why don't we save the last two items in here for later? I'm sorry, Liz. Okay, um, we'll save B and F for part two tonight. Why don't we just quickly <laughs> again? I, I keep feeling like I'm going to look up and see uh, Steph's video completely yeah. gone. Yeah, it's going to happen here shortly. I've got eight minutes of battery remaining. Oh, okay, let's hurry. <laughs> Captain, incoming message. Let's start off our feedback, part one, with item one uh, from David. And uh, David is writing this mostly for Nick. So I'm going to let you take over, Nick. Okay, sure. Uh, David says, hi, Nick. I've uh, been a long-time listener and no-time contributor. Uh, I used to have a long commute to work and would listen to the podcast on my MP3 player, but since lockdown and the now only 15-minute commute to my current job, I've fallen way down on episodes, and I'm only on January's episodes. So I'll have to put in a good effort to catch up. You certainly will, old chap. Um, I have had a long time interest in aviation. Started really when I was a kid, and we lived in South Harrow, that's uh, north part of London, uh, under the flight path into RAF Northolt, which is funny enough, also in the north part of London. Uh, when I was five years old, a Pan Am 707 landed at Northolt by mistake. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Well, the runway's kind of in the same direction as Heathrow, uh, but and they sort of in both in London-ish, but one's to the north and the other one's to the west, uh, and they're about 15 miles apart. Anyway, um, Dad took me down to see it as he had a motorbike with a sidecar. Oh, how fantastic. Uh, they were taking the seats out at the time, I'm guessing, Jeff, to reduce the weight <laughs> so that they could get it off again. Wow. Uh, after that, they uh, put no on the gasometer. I think they're assuming it was N-O rather than no, standing for North Holt, ah. and L-H on the South Hall one. So L-H would have been for... London Heathrow. Um, I don't know if you've done a plane tale on that. Well, no, I I haven't actually uh, because I didn't know it had happened. And uh, I did know that they wrote on the gasometers. Now, uh, I don't know if you have gasometers in America. Don't know what that is. All right. They are, a, we used to call them treacle tins. Uh, they're like a huge, great big tin. Um, which is in a sort of a scaffolding frame and uh, that rises up until this, what looks like sort of half a tin is about, about 40 or 50 feet into the air. And it's filled with uh, gas, coal gas or natural gas or whatever. And then they let weight pressurize the gas and that distributes it to all the households. Oh. So, um, you know, the gasometers were everywhere, and they were literally to provide gas pressure. Oh. Uh, anyway, there's a big one by Heathrow, and for as long as I remembered, they had written Heathrow, not just LH, but they'd actually written in big white letters Heathrow around it. Uh, eventually, uh, probably about 10 or 15 years ago, Adam might know, uh, I think that fell by the wayside. I don't know if they still have it there. But, hmm. uh, anyway, I, I digress. Um, I don't know if you've done a plane tour on that. Uh, when at school, 
I was uh, to go into the ATC, and I was uh, uh, not the uh, air training car, I think air traffic control. Uh-huh. And I was in a youth cadet scheme at Heathrow and used to do things in the radar and the tower. I used to do my plane spotting from the tower's flat roof just below the observation deck. Uh, he's, I suspect, talking about the old tower, which is something of a monument at Heathrow. Hmm. And I have a new one that looks like a pepper pot on a stick. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also went to uh, LATC, L-A-T-C-C, which stands, I think, for London Air Traffic Control Centre uh, at West Drayton. Uh, I've been there uh, uh, a lot, spending hours sitting on the radar consoles. I'm sure that would have upset the controllers a bit because didn't you get in the way when they were trying to control if you were sitting on the radar consoles? I would think so. Uh, yeah, I would have thought you'd go, <laughs> get out of my console. Anyway, <laughs> unfortunately, it didn't work out as Nats closed Preston Northern Radar and most of the controllers moved down to West Drayton and it was uh, then overstaffed for some time. And by the time I was accepted for air traffic control, I was in another career and I chose not to change. Something I regret in some ways, but I would be dead by now, <laughs> like most of the controllers who worked then. Uh, I'm sure some of them survived for a while. Apparently, uh, slip discs from working on the 15-inch horizontal radar monitors. Yeah, can you imagine that? They had radars that were sort of, they weren't in front of you like a screen. They were flat. And everyone had to lean over them. And you oh. often had uh, more than one controller working on the same radar scope. So everyone was sort of leaning in, bending over. Ergonomics think- were not optimum. <laughs> yes. Apparently, uh, these scopes, uh, I'm going back a bit now, and this is me talking, had a tendency, if uh, the power wasn't being maintained at a very high level, uh, to shrink in size, and all the controls would have to lean in even further to try and see what was happening on this slightly smaller scale as everything shrank into the middle. Um, And they'd bang heads eventually if they weren't careful. Anyway, um, (laughs) from working... Sorry, the horizontal radar monitors and having to write on flight slips or heart attacks from the stress level. Yeah, I'm sure it was very stressful. Uh, I don't know what time you were up in Scotland on the RF4s. Uh, an RF4 is a reconnaissance uh, F4. Uh, and you didn't do didn't, a reconnaissance, did you? Well, we that's um, an American term. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British called it an F4, um, and if it had a reconnaissance, it would have been uh, an FGR1. So it would have been fighter, ground attack, reconnaissance, mm. Mark I. Um, so uh, we had an FGR2, so the RAF1s were capable of reconnaissance roles, mm. and that was the FGR was for reconnaissance. But all the ones I flew weren't. Uh, but anyway, I used to listen to, on HF, to the intercepts and plot positions on my maps, but that's another story. That's interesting. Uh, wouldn't have happened with me. Our <laughs> Phantom didn't have an HF radio, hmm. so uh, only VHF. I'm um, anyway, I was up in Scotland uh, in the late 70s and again in the mid-80s. I found this attached article in Pilot Magazine last December and thought you might find it of interest. Kind regards, David Moore. And uh, I did look at this uh, article. It uh, um, it 
tells a great story of this uh, chap's uh, flying career, uh, and it's called An uh, Unconventional Route from Pilot Profile, um, from Pounding the Beat to Ferrying Ostriches. Jimmy Tweedle's path into aviation of the 747 has taken a few interesting turns. So it's a lovely story of uh, this pilot's uh, long and interesting career. Um, so, yeah, thank you for sending the article. That's very kind of you. Uh, and uh, I suppose we, I don't know if we'd be allowed to put it on the website where that's copyrighted or not. So I, don't I don't, yeah, I don't know. It kind of looks to me like he scanned it and, um, put it in doesn't look like something that you would find that they no. uh, maybe I'll, I'll do some work and see if that it's something that you can find only put out, as a but PDF. you could probably uh, get a copy if you wanted to read it it's yeah. the december uh, 2019 um article relatively from their magazine yeah yeah and uh you can in fact find them at pilotweb.aero i think that's what it says oh okay well we'll make sure Web. before we uh include it in our show notes yeah anyway lovely to hear from you david lovely to hear those stories very kind all right thank you nick the next one from chris uh he said that he's enjoying the chapters and pictures in or while listening to the show on uh, apple podcasts he said i'm a few episodes behind at the moment but listening about the chapters and pictures and podcasts so sorry if this is old news that's this is how it shows the or this is how it shows in Apple CarPlay using the Apple Podcasts app. It's great being able to see the pictures of what each bit of the show is about and the title of the feedback, etc. Yeah, so there you go. You can put a little um, picture uh, of his Apple CarPlay display while listening to the show. And in this case, I think we were doing our Getting to Know Us segment uh, because I can, it's a small little pic there, but I can kind of see the conglomeration of uh, images that uh, Nick put together for our getting to know us overlay or um, that portion or segment of the show. Yeah, we're trying to do more of that. It's it's a bit, a bit of a job for you, Jeff, because you've got you know like a three hour show to put mm-hmm. into chapters. For me, on plain tales, it's a lot easier. But I'm trying to do it on plain tales as well. Yeah, I have nothing else to do. So. <laughs> Might as well get a life, Jeff. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> it's not the first time that somebody said that to me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Shet writes, "Hi, crew. I was very interested in the news story about the airplane that flew under the Mackinac Bridge. To answer a couple of your questions, yes, the bridge has been struck by an airplane in the past." resulting in the death of three Marine Corps Reserve officers. The paint on the bridge suffered minor scratches. <laughs> pretty beefy bridge. Wow, yeah, pretty strong. <laughs> the bridge is about five miles in length, 10 kilometers, and is designed like a wing to fly in the strong winds of the Mackinac Straits. It's pronounced Mackinac, never Mackinac. The rule of thumb is Mackinac is the French spelling, or Mackinac with a C is the French spelling, used north of the bridge and including the bridge, whereas Mackinac, with the W, is the spelling used south of the bridge. Hope that helps you out there, Jeff. Apparently, I need a lot of help lately. Thank you very much. Uh, With the help of Flight Radar 24, I think we can identify suspect number one. And he's referring to the the reason why we're even talking about the Mackinac Bridge was the single-engine airplane that had uh, flown underneath the span, the center span, 
and he's uh, showing this um, picture from Flight Radar 24, and he thinks that he's identified the suspect. Uh, the time shown is UTC. This would be about 2.51 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And if we blow it up a little bit, what does it say? November 118. Sierra Charlie. So that's who he thinks the perp is. Uh, the FAA makes the N number registry public on the internet, so even the crack investigative, uh, investigative team at the Michigan State Police can look it up with plenty of time left to reach for that next donut. Ooh, <laughs> that's kind of, kind of rude. Shut, come on. Hope that they don't pull you over for that one. Um, other fools have flown under the bridge on April 28th, 1959. And we talked about that on the, I think the last episode, uh, captain John Lapo decided to fly a B 47 bomber, uh, into the 155. No, that's foot a big piece of kit base. Yep. Between the bridge deck and the water. It's unlikely he was carrying the traditional thermonuclear bomb load at the time. He was fined $300 to be paid monthly at $50 per month over a six month period and was grounded until he retired. Today, the fine is reportedly closer to $28,000. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about the John and how he decided to do it and everybody was excited about it, except the navigator <laughs> whose dad <laughs> was asleep. the general. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> wow. My bad. Well, thank you, Chet, for uh, sending in more information about the Mackinac Bridge. I'll never, ever pronounce it Mackinac. This is an, a sad one, actually. This is a Texas Charlie. He says, not the usual bit of fun that he likes to send us. Howdy, y'all. Uh, normally, I try to add a bit of fun to the show, but today I'm tackling one of my pet peeves, lack of respect for the cabin crew. If the attached picture of a note is real, I would fully support the airline tracking down the culprit and banning for life this person from the airline. And they, it turns out that they actually have found the person that wrote this real letter um, or note and have banned that person from, it was an American Airlines flight. Uh, then, as the originating airliner would share the name of the passenger with all the other airlines and let each decide if that particular airline should follow suit, but then I'm sure the lawyers would object. A comment such as this from a passenger only reinforces my belief that the position of flight attendant should be renamed security and amenity officer, and the uniform should be changed to elicit respect, similar to that of the cockpit crew or at least a uniform that denotes a level of respect. You may need to censor the attached message, at least for the sake of civility. Adios all, Texas Charlie. And yeah, I, I cannot read this note verbatim because it would violate, uh, I, I try to make this show a non-explicit podcast. And if I read the words and phrases in this note, um, we would have to slap an explicit rating on this episode. So we're not going to do that. But, um, and I'm sure most of you uh, by now have heard about this, where the uh, person that wrote the note on a um, air sickness bag, um, and in the middle of the air sickness bag, it says waste, W-A-S-T-E. And this person writes, apparently what happened is this passenger was um, 
given um, a warning by a flight attendant that this person needs to wear their mask correctly, their face mask, and they had it over their mouth, but not over their mouth and nose. And we all know that if, if it's not over both, then it's not really doing anything to keep stuff coming out of your mouth and nose. So uh, apparently the flight attendant reminded the person that they needed to wear it properly. And the person uh, objected to the flight attendant, you know, pointing that out to them. And I don't, I mean, what do we do? Do we, we really don't want to get into all this, but um, the person is, yeah, you're nothing but a glorified maid who needs to jump down off her high horse and learn how to speak to people. Nobody cares about your stupid seat policies or your nose issues. We pay your salary, underlined, and your attitude is unnecessary. The very fact that we have to listen and kowtow to a nobody who does bleep, accept, collect, or trash and serve crappy food makes me absolutely ill. You are a mask Nazi and a, uh, I can't even say any of that, a four-eyed something. And if it wasn't for this job, you would be cleaning motel rooms for $2 tips and meth. <laughs> wow. This person is what a person. not a nice person. I, make, I made sure to write this on a bag labeled as to what I think your life actually is. A waste. Warm regards. Hmm, that's a little passive aggressiveness there. I recognize that. A person <laughs> who hates your guts. So this, this is a troubled person. <laughs> who who wrote this and uh, as uh, mentioned um, you know charlie suggested that you know the 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 airline find out who this was and ban them from their airline and that's exactly what they did and the only really thing that i can say about this whole thing is where is the love where is the love that's the uh, Roberta Flack version of Where is the Love? Yeah, come on. Where is the love, folks? Be nice. Right? Don't you agree, Nick? It's beyond some people, Jeff. And I, I despair a little, a little, I'm afraid, because uh, we don't need this in our lives. No. Certainly these lovely ladies and gents who work in the cabin uh, and who have actually a pretty hard time of it most of the time don't need it and the fact is that a lot of them are being made redundant so uh, you know they may end up having to deal with a passenger like this and then they may be losing their jobs on top of that so yeah uh, owen in our in our live audience says i've heard rumors only that the cabin crew member to whom this was handed is a relatively junior category and won't get to keep her job as a result of the furloughs slash layoffs wow yeah so i i I'd like to uh, just turn this around somehow and fire it straight back at the person who wrote it because mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they don't deserve really to be on this planet. I have a feeling they felt like they were embarrassed because somebody had to tell them how to wear their mask or remind them uh, to wear it properly. And they were so embarrassed that they took out their anger, I guess, and embarrassment on this poor uh, flight attendant, which. It was completely unnecessary. 
Okay. Well, you know, people that listen to the show understand, you know, that this is not the way you, you know, you behave in a civilized society. Certainly not. All right. Well, let's move on to something cheerier. Um, and Captain Phil sent some audio feedback regarding something that we talked about on an earlier show. Hi, APG crew. This is Captain Phil from Minneapolis. I'm a CRJ captain for Acme Skywest. I wanted to call in, so to speak, regarding the CRJ approach categories. Captain Jeff, you're right in speculating that the CRJ-200 is, in fact, a category Delta aircraft. The aircraft lacks any leading-edge devices, and at our max landing weight of 47,000 pounds, VRF is 141 knots, to which we add 5 knots. We then slow to VRF on short final, provided there are no uh, gusts being reported. Incidentally, Miami Rick and Captain Nick, I'm assuming you probably carried more fuel than our max landing weight. Uh, anyway, as for the CRJ-700, uh, that is a category Charlie aircraft straight in. Uh, however, for circling approaches, it is considered category D. The CRJ-900, like the 200, is always a category D as in Delta aircraft. Anyway, that's all I have for you. Uh, so blue skies, favorable winds, hot coffee, cold IPAs, smooth bourbon for Dana, and good health. Take care. Awesome, Captain Phil. And good job of um, keeping the uh, identity of your airline secret. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Acme Skywest. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we were talking about approach uh, air plane approach categories on an earlier episode and uh i surmised that the um the the crj at least the 200 would be in a category d because of the very high approach speeds that they have so uh interesting certainly as i'm learning more every day yeah, every day's a school day yeah you, well talking about learning things man I'm, I'm learning all kinds of things on this show how how dumb i am about certain things um <laughs> but uh Anyway, um, you know, you'd think that um, approach categories would have something to do with, you know, the size and weight of an airplane. But actually, uh, it is directly related to the speeds that the airplane is flying on approach and doing circling approaches and that kind of thing. And, of course, then indirectly, the, the size of the airplane and the weight of the airplane will affect how high or low those speeds are. So, yeah, it's uh, an interesting, uh, interesting thing, I think. Thank you, Captain Phil, for that, and uh, thanks for the, all all the well wishes. Cold IPAs, I'm always up for that. Um, yeah. uh, the thing about this category, mm -hmm. the thing that amazed me was that uh, aircraft um, that going into the smaller airfields around the world, particularly in the say the states, because um, they're the smaller, lighter aircraft, uh, they tend to go to these airports. Mm -hmm. Some of these airports don't have category D approaches hmm. uh, because of the speed of the approach of the aircraft um, and that that surprised me so you've got relatively small aircraft like the bizjet we were talking about the um oh god gulfstream no? yeah gulfstream yeah gulfstream yeah. um five or four yeah. gulfstream four. four yeah and this aircraft uh, they quite might be making approaches into airports where there's no actually a plated arrival for them to fly for their category of aircraft and i just found that an interesting anomaly yeah. that is yeah so like uh 
um, the chap I was chatting to at Farnborough said, um, there are a lot of airfields where you could only make a visual approach. And I'm going, really? Oh, yeah, Graham, Graham Fig. Um, yeah, Graham. Yeah. yeah. Um, that yeah. is interesting. That, I guess there's no way to legally fly an instrument approach to some of these aer- uh, yeah. airports. Yeah, and for those people who don't quite understand, uh, some of the turns you make in a Category D aircraft, because you're flying faster, have a larger radius to them. So it would take you, say, too far from the airfield or too close to a piece of high terrain. Uh, so you've got to fly the approach slower and make tighter turns. And you can't do that in a Category D aircraft because of the design of the airplane, the weight, the wing, whatever. It's flying faster, so it stays at a safe speed. Um, and uh, can't literally can't make those radius of turns. So you've got to figure something else out. Yeah. Guess you got to do what you got to do. Or you cheat. Yeah, you cheat. Right. And none of us recommend that. No. You'll end up on one of our news items. Yes, you don't want to do that because we'll ridicule you. (laughs) Yes, we will. Uh, uh, Stephen Pittsburgh, uh, now this is a subject we never hear about. (laughs) Tongue in cheek. Uh, This may have been discussed already. Yeah, that's one of the hazards with uh, our new listeners. (laughs) We have this is episode number 442 that we're doing today. Um, uh, Chances are we have talked about your question in the past. And this is one that we have. Um, but I understand if you're new to the show, you wouldn't necessarily know that, uh, this may have been discussed already as I'm a little behind and only just finished listening to episode 438 with the discussion of pilots learning to use a side stick with their non-dominant hand. I'm left-handed and drive a car with a manual transmission, which means I shift with my right hand. It feels perfectly natural and is not difficult in any way. And I had no trouble learning how to do it. All the trouble came from learning what to do with my left foot, even though that's my dominant side, which goes to show that there is a learning curve with any activity that requires a level of precision, even if a person is using their preferred hand or foot. In automotive forum, in automotive forums where there's discussion of buying a right-hand drive car or left-hand drive if you're Nick, the question often comes up, is it strange to shift gears with your other hand? The usual answer is that you get used to it very quickly and have no trouble switching back when driving other cars. Since the type of motions needed for using a gear shifter and side stick are similar, I would imagine for any pilot with even a basic level of experience using a side stick with their non-dominant hand or even switching hands would also be similar as discussed in the episode when relief pilots were mentioned. Uh, Tailwinds, clear skies, hazy IPAs, etc., Steve in Pittsburgh. And yes, he's right. Yeah, absolutely. Funny enough, Steve, I learned to drive on my father's old Mercedes, which was a left-hand drive Merc because he bought it in Germany. Uh, and then when I passed the test, I used to borrow my mum's Mini, which was a right-hand drive. So I was faced with the same problem. But I think um, when you're driving a car, it's slightly different in that um, – you know, a lot of the activities like changing gear, uh, they don't require fine motor skills. And that was the biggest problem I had shifting to flying with my left hand on a side stick was that I could do everything to a reasonable level, but that really gentle, fine motor skill you needed to tweak the airplane, uh, just to say in the flare phase or just touching the wheels on, uh, it took me a little while to develop uh, that 
gentle touch, that those fine skills uh, that I could do everything else, mm-hmm. you know, I ham in a ham-fisted way. But uh, just that area was took me a while to get used to it. Well, very good. I'm sure that uh, Steve, uh, you're not the first to ask, and I'm sure you will not be the last. But, no, no. Uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, you know covering it at least or asking it so that we can cover it. With I'll the, put a quid you know. on six weeks. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, mark that down in the uh, the book. Those, <laughs> <laughs> that book that we keep for. I don't know. Repetitive questions. Yes. See when they come around. <laughs> Our <again>. betting book. <laughs> uh, Magnus writes in he says thanks for a great podcast in episode 441 you talked about air forces that use road bases the swedish air force is using road bases when you are driving in the country in sweden you sometimes come across an extremely long and wide stretch of of road that's a runway Uh, you also see closed off roads running off into the forest that's taxiways to the maintenance hangars Here's an old video from the mid-80s featuring the Saab JA-37 Viggen using road bases somewhere in Sweden. So, without further ado. I love it. They've got a follow-me motorcycle. (laughs) Ah, this is nice. (laughs) <laughs> I love that Viggen with those canards. Oh yeah, good-looking airplane. Yeah. Oh wait, we're 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 talking over the narr- narration here. But yeah, he's speaking in Swedish, know, so we can't understand what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> but for our Swedish listeners out there, Nick, yeah, that's very true. Very look, rude look, of us. They're growing those trees very fast. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, we'll, fastest growing trees in Sweden. <laughs> we'll have a uh, a link to the uh, video in the uh, uh, show notes. Uh, we were saying we love the the music, and I, I actually kind of do like that music. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it features in a lot of naughty videos that Sweden were famous <laughs> for producing. As well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How yeah, would you know? I recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, it showed the uh, the vegan um, kind of going off onto one of these. Um, smaller roads taxiways and then kind of ducks right into this little area and then they they're they have trees that are obviously not real trees that are on some kind of dolly or whatever that they quickly you know use to uh cover up the the uh, the gap in the in the roadway and uh hide the airplane that's pretty cool yeah absolutely that, that vegan was a super looking piece of kit i always thought yeah i thought so too very very fast looking airplane all right well liz tells us that this is perfect timing for this week's installment of the old pilot's plane tales and uh, this one is entitled little nelly and her friends the old pilot's plane tales little nelly and her friends Little Nelly was a rare breed of aviatrix, the name of which has its origins in ancient Greek. Scholars have suggested that the first part comes from the word av, meaning back, again, and other, but it also relates to the Phrygian autos, meaning self, and the second part, eros, which possibly comes from the Sanskrit, 
goal for circle. From eros we get gyros, which refers to the brim of a hat, a walk, a bypass or lap, but also something round, or a movement in a circle. Thus, in more modern parlance, we have the more familiar autogyro, literally meaning self-turning. Flying an autogyro is a novel form of taking to the air, but something of a niche sport that is practiced by a few devotees, often because of the ability to land in very short distances. This was ably demonstrated by postman Doug Hughes. Now, Doug had a beef with Congress about campaign financing, and he wanted to deliver 535 letters, one for each serving congressman, in a way that might generate a little publicity. He was seen flying a few hundred feet off the ground along the National Mall from the Washington Monument before demonstrating the short landing capability of his autogyro by plonking it down on the west lawn of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. a few years back. He somehow managed to avoid the considerable air defences that are present to protect the US government and threw the Capitol building into a lockdown. Hughes pleaded guilty to several offences. He faced a possible three years in jail and a quarter of a million dollar fine, but pled down to 120 days in prison and a year of probation. He was fired from his job as a mailman, but successfully appealed the decision and was reinstated. In the last few weeks of his show, David Letterman asked President Obama what the top ten dumbest questions that he had ever been asked whilst in office were. Number one was apparently the errant autogyro pilot purportedly asking, "'When will you return my gyrocopter?' The autogyro has a number of different names, presumably for those not familiar with ancient Greek, and is commonly known as a gyroplane, gyrocopter, and sometimes a benson. The inventor of this unusual flying machine was the first count of La Sierva, Juan de la Sierva Cardonio. De la Sierva was a pretty clever chap a civil engineer with a talent as an inventor. He had been interested in flight since he was a teenager. In 1918, he built conventional, for the time that is, fixed-wing aircraft and the world's first trimotor. Its crash a year later after a stall convinced him that aviation safety called for stall-proof aircraft that could make steep takeoffs and landings safely at slow speeds. After tossing a toy model rotorcraft out of his parents' bedroom, he began experimenting with the rotating wing aircraft in 1920 and developed the autogyro as a more stable form of flying machine. I'm guessing that we all know what a helicopter looks like, but not everyone will understand how an autogyro, although superficially similar in looks, works. The early versions resembled tail-wheeled aircraft fuselages. For example, an early version used the fuselage of a Sommer monoplane. 
They had a tractor, referring to the propeller type, that pulls, as opposed to a pusher, engine at the front, but lacked wings. In place of the wings, there was a central shaft sticking up from near the centre of gravity, upon which were mounted large rotor blades, like those on early helicopters. The rotor blades weren't powered, but rotated freely around. The way they work is the same way as a seed from a tree like a sycamore flies. The seed's wing, or the autogyrus blades, auto-rotate. Simply said, the wind pushing against them gives them the power to turn. Once they build up enough rotational speed, they also produce lift in the same way as an aerofoil does. For the falling sycamore seed, it merely slows the descent. But with an engine to give forward speed, the autogyro can easily build up enough speed to overcome its weight and fly. For those with sufficient interest, the more complicated version is this. As the aircraft is moving forward, the rotor is mounted in such a way that the plane of rotation is at a slight angle to the direction the aircraft's moving in. It tilts back, as opposed to helicopter rotors which tilt forward to make progress. Any wind passing over an aerofoil will create both lift and drag. The lift will be perpendicular to the airflow, and the drag will be parallel to the airflow. This is true for all aerofoils, not just for the rotor of an autogyro. When the lift and drag vectors are added together, they create a resultant force. In auto-rotation, this resultant force is in front of the axis of rotation, so in addition to providing lift, it also pulls the rotor forward. Simple, really. Out of interest, since the relative wind needs to turn the rotor disc, due to the aircraft's forward movement, it goes up, through the rotor instead of down as it would in a helicopter. Confused yet? Trust me, it works. How the young first count worked all this out is an indication of his genius, but he had some problems as well. His first efforts, the Sierra C1, 2 and 3, weren't successful and got little past a fast taxi or just getting a few inches into the air. He discovered a major problem in his initial rotor design. The blades were all set at a fixed angle. This was fine for the blades that were advancing forward into the airflow, as they made lots of lift, but the other ones, the retreating blades, didn't. This meant that one side of the rotor disc was flying much better than the other, which caused a big imbalance and a big problem. To cure this asymmetry, where the blades joined the central hub, the count fitted hinges that allowed the blades to flap, smoothing out the variations in lift. With that problem sorted out, in January 1923, flown by Alejandro Gomez Spencer, the C4 became the first autogyro to fly. Aviation would never be the same again. Well, it would, actually, but the autogyro was a good first step on the road to the development of the noisiest, most horrible flying machine ever to take to the air by beating it into submission, the helicopter. But that's another story. 
The C4 flew and it very quickly demonstrated the quality that our count was counting on. Only three days after its first flight, in a steep climb, shortly after takeoff, the engine failed. Now, a conventional aircraft would almost certainly have stalled and plunged into the ground, but instead, the autogyro descended gently downwards, without damage or injury to the courageous Alejandro Gomez Spencer. Before long, with financial help from the Spanish military aviation establishment, the Count had built his sixth autogyro, imaginatively named the C-6, and one of their pilots flew it the six and a half miles between two airfields in eight minutes, which, by my reckoning, was considerably less than one mile a minute, but a significant achievement for the rotorcraft of the time. The Scottish industrialist James Weir learned of De La Sierra's achievements and asked him to create a company in England to build more of the machines. Before long, a new C-6 was demonstrating in front of the British Air Ministry at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, and Britain then became the world's centre of autogyro development. Improvements were made to the blade flap hinge, which included some fore and aft movement to ease stress, and this was incorporated in the C8 version, which also became the first rotorcraft to cross the English Channel. Then the US industrialist Harold Pitcairn visited England, and after being taken airborne for a test flight, which included a safe auto-rotation descent to a gentle landing, was greatly impressed. He purchased a C-8, powered by a right whirlwind engine, and took it back to the States, where it was produced under licence by a number of manufacturers, and also by Fock Wolf in Germany. One area that needed improvement in the design was the reduction in ground run for takeoff. The rotor needed to be started turning by hand before takeoff but it took quite a while before the forward speed spanned the blades up enough to allow flight. The next step was to devise a way of accelerating the rotor prior to takeoff, which would dramatically shorten the run required. Various methods were used, from a simple rope wrapped around the shaft and pulled by a team of men, then horses, and finally a motor car, but none made the autogyro self-sufficient. Our count tried deflecting the propeller slipstream upwards through the rotor, and then the machine's own engine was coupled to a shaft which drove the rotors. Initially developed by Pitcairn in America, this method was eventually adopted in later versions of the count's machines. I think we can all see where the autogyro was headed, but its passage into a true helicopter capable of sustained hovering was still a way off, but at least the new system allowed them to get the autogyro into the air vertically. They called it a jump takeoff, and it required the blades to be spun up to as high a speed as possible, which then allowed it to lift off, and then before the speed of the rotor fell away, the pilot would transition quickly to forward flight. Improvements were also being made to the design of the rotor hub, which allowed 
tilt to the rotors, doing away with the need for a conventional tail section. Now the pilot had one control for pitch and roll, and a bar moved by the feet for yaw, although having a freewheeling rotor meant there was no need for a tail rotor. A simple rudder served. The way was now open for the first helicopters, and it was the Russian Central Aerohydrodynamic Institute who may have made the first tentative steps in 1932 with the TSAGI-1EA, followed by the French company Breger-Dorand and the German Focke-Wulf company the following year. Helicopters are, though, a different story, as we want to know about Little Nelly. As aircraft and helicopters developed, the autogyro fell somewhere between them. It wasn't as quick as a fixed-wing aircraft, nor as streamlined, so consumed more fuel. It was quicker than a helicopter, but lacked the flexibility to hover and manoeuvre within tight spaces. Although some were made for military use in both world wars, they were pretty much sidelined. However, both the Germans and Japanese made a version to fly from submarines, the Soviets used them for artillery spotting, and the RAF used some to calibrate their coastal radar stations during the Battle of Britain. As interest moved away from this odd little niche machine, they still held a place in the heart of many enthusiasts, and the design was optimised into a lightweight frame of metal tubing supporting a pusher engine, which allowed greater visibility from a partly enclosed bullet-shaped cockpit. The rotor design was modernised and materials improved so that it became very, very safe, flexible and a fun way to take to the air. The leaders in the modernization of the autogyro were people like Igor Benson, a Russian immigrant to the US who developed a small single-seat version for the US military. Whilst in the United Kingdom, a rather eccentric former RAF wing commander built similar designs which were used by police forces in military training and in the search for the Loch Ness Monster. Wallace became a leading exponent of the autogyro and earned 34 world records. He had joined the Air Force during the war, despite cheating at his eye test, flew operational missions in Lysanders and Wellington bombers before being seconded to the US Strategic Air Command, where he flew the enormous Convair B-36 Peacemaker. Wallace's chief claim to fame was to appear in a James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice, flying his Wallace WA-116 Agile, which was named Little Nelly, after the legendary musical performer Nelly Wallace. Why he thought the noisy buzzing and flapping of Little Nelly made him think of the musical performer is not made clear. During the movie, he flew Little Nelly through a series of semi-aerobatic manoeuvres with great panache, buzzing buildings, in and out of a volcano, and finally destroying four of Blofeld's armed Bell 47 helicopters with rear-facing flamethrowers, parachute mines, machine guns, rockets, and over-the-shoulder launched air-to-air missiles, all fired from neat buttons 
marked by a 1970s plastic Dymo label maker. Hello, base one. Listening. Little Nelly got a hot reception. Four big shots made improper advances towards her. But she defended her honour with great success. Heading for home. Listening to the dialogue today, I have no doubt there were a few who winced. Not exactly classic Bond. There have been a few developments of the autogyro, but none that have really caught on. Some very smart, fully enclosed versions have been made, one of which, the Green Hawk 4, four-seater, was used to patrol Salt Lake International Airport during their Winter Olympics. Another fascinating development of the autogyro principle was the Fairy Rotodyne. Aimed at being an airport transfer and intercity transport, this remarkable aircraft could seat up to 48 passengers, the production version would carry over 60, and was a combination tip-jet-powered rotorcraft with a short-fixed wing upon which there were two conventional Napier turboprop engines. For vertical takeoff and landing, the tip-jets powered by air, bled from the engines mixed with fuel, would spin the rotors, but once in forward motion, powered by the napiers, they could be shut down and the rotor would auto-rotate, relying on the forward speed. The short wings held the forward thrust engines and aided by providing additional lift. For landing, the rotor jets would be restarted, allowing the aircraft to hover in a way not possible in a conventional autojet. Tower from Rotodyne, take off turns, please. Rotodyne from Tower, you're clear to go. Roger, Rotodyne taking off now. The concept had many advantages, including its high-speed cruise of 200 knots and the simplicity of control, as unlike a helicopter, it didn't need a tail rotor. There's no doubt that it would have made a very safe way to fly, but the real problem was the noise of those rotor jets fixed to the blade tips. The test pilot, John Farley, said of it, From two miles away, it would stop a conversation. I mean, the noise of those little jets on the tips of the rotor was just indescribable. So, what have we got? the noisiest hovering vehicle the world has yet to come up with, and you're going to stick it in the middle of a city? Stick it in the middle of a city. Stick it in the middle of a city. Stick it in the middle of a city. I love that music. <laughs> yeah, it's, real, it's real elevator music. <laughs> but People. perfect for that era, I thought. I think I'm just living in the wrong era. <laughs> I love that Rotodyne. I think we've talked about that on the show before and the fact that it was like really super noisy. Uh, yeah, apparently. But uh, apparently uh, Ferry said that they were would be able to develop uh, some kind of uh, exhaust muffler for it, mm. reduce the noise. Um, but nah, I don't think it was really going to be feasible. Uh, although, you know, it uh, nowadays, if you think about it, uh, uh, an auto gyro consumes less fuel than a lot of uh, types of transport. But mm -hmm. yeah, n nice idea, though. I mean, combining three different types of airplane, the helicopter, the auto gyro, and the conventional airplane. What could possibly go wrong? 
exactly. It was a bit like Thunderbirds, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, that was interesting. I've always thought that uh, the autogyro vehicle was an interesting one, and uh, that helped me understand how, you know, the physics behind how, how it all works. Yeah, I, I I hadn't really thought too much about it till I looked into it, and then I went, of course, yes, you've got to have air going up through the rotor disc. Hang on a minute. If air goes up through the rotor disc, how does it make lift? Yeah. Um, yeah, so get your mind around that bit. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for the uh, plain tale. As always, we uh, really enjoy it here. And I love it. Um, with that, I think that we're going to go ahead and end part one and then uh, stay tuned for the next part. Hopefully, we'll be joined by Miami Rick and possibly Dr. Steph again. I hope so. Good luck with question nine. (laughs) Hey, I recognize this intro music from his mobile studio in the Republic of Korea, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Bradley Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Just got off my big old jet airliner. Happy to be back with you all. Awesome. We're so happy that you could make it. So we're doing a uh, a two-parter today so we could get you on the show and because we have some news and feedback and we wanted to hear some of your expertise regarding it. So first, before we do that, Rick, tell us what have you been up to since the last show? Well, I've been uh, still in Korea. This is uh, home away from home now, apparently. Um, had a couple of... Uh, <laughs> went went out looking food. for a new house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Ended up in Korea. <laughs> Made a ride at Albuquerque, apparently. You're not supposed to. Always left. Always left. Exactly. Always, left. Always go left. <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, good down here. I had to deal with a couple super typhoons. Um, you know, a little, little, little on the windy side, but uh, everything worked out fine. Uh, and just doing, uh, doing the standard uh, Seoul to uh, Taipei to Nagoya, and then back here. Um, three legs overnight. Um, three pilots on board. So it's uh, it, it's a little tough when it's just one captain and two FOs. Uh, because, uh, I, you know, I basically have to stay in the seat the whole time. Uh, the hey. others get to swap around three is um, company too. Exactly. But, Sorry. uh, but it's good. <laughs> good. Happy to be back and uh, looking forward to another great episode of the APG. Excellent. Well, we're happy, uh, as I said, uh, that you're with us and, um, glad that the weather wasn't too bad on, on this particular, uh, day, day of flying. Uh, yeah, you, you talked about the, um, the typhoons uh, last week, you kind of uh, skirted around them getting into uh, Korea. And then I guess it must have affected your, your trip um, uh, the subsequent days. Yeah. A little bit of uh, a little bit of stiff wind uh, from the West coming into um, uh, back into uh, Incheon into Seoul mm-hmm. um, at a, you know, nice steady 30 to 40 uh, knot crosswinds, which, uh, you know, made it a, uh, Made it good practice. It's a yeah. good thing that we practice crosswinds in the simulator the way we do. But uh, it was it was it was good. You know, nice uh, nice hand flying uh, opportunity. So 
So does that 767 handle well in crosswinds like the 74 or not quite as well? Oh, oh yeah, it does. I mean, and, yeah. and the nice thing about the 76 is that uh, on the 76, you really have to be flying sideways to even get the uh, the the engine, the nacelle close to the runway to, to be able to hit it on the 74. Just the five degree bank uh, was enough to actually strike a pod on the 76. Mm. It's, it's a lot more forgiving. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, but I mean, and, but there's, there's a, there's a kind of, um, a certain place where you just don't want to go too much into a, into a side slip, you know, kind of you know, wing low method, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, these things are better to just, and when the, when the wind is that strong, it's just better to kind of, you know, kick out a little bit of the crab to, mm-hmm. you know, just to not side load the landing gear that much. Right. Uh, but still landed it landed in a crab because uh, especially when it's gusty mm-hmm. um, to keep that engine from uh, from hitting the uh, the runway. Well, Boeing says that all their products, uh, except for the uh, Long Beach products, <laughs> are uh, fine landing in the full demonstrated crosswind uh, in a crab without even decrabbing at all. So that's, that's what right. they say anyway. So there you go. Well, I'm going to be flying a Boeing product. There you go. <laughs> Made in Long Beach. It's not my product. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't land it in a crab. Yeah, I'm yeah, not going to land it in a crab. Not advised. No, not advised. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's move on, try to knock out a couple of news items. And let's start with uh, the first one left over uh, from earlier today. And this is the Jazz DH8C at Toronto. Um, this happened in May of 2019, so about a year and a half ago. Uh, a Jazz de Havilland Dash 8 300 uh, was performing flight 8615 and, uh, from Toronto to Sudbury. Am I saying that right? Sudbury? Sudbury? Sudbury. Sudbury. Um, in Ontario, Canada, with 54 passengers, three crew. They'd flown to Sudbury, uh, but had to enter a hole due to weather before the crew decided to return to Toronto where the uh, aircraft landed safely about two and a half hours uh, after departure. It was a long flight to Toronto, but they left Toronto. <laughs> they, yeah, one of those. Th- sometimes that happens, you know. Um, anyway, so they thought, oh, well, glad this day's over. While taxiing to the apron, a fuel truck drove into the aircraft, <laughs> causing substantial damage to the aircraft. Believed to be on, be, believed to be beyond repair too many bees in there including nose left fuselage left hand propeller as well as to the fuel truck fuel leaked however no fire broke out five occupants of the aircraft including both flight crew needed medical treatment at the airport three of the injured were taken to hospitals i believe the uh the captain had some kind of uh hip injury because that's where the fuel Mm. truck hit uh right there uh, on that side of the cockpit so uh, the reason why we're talking about it, because we did cover this when it af- right after it happened um, last year, but uh, now uh, on the 2nd of September, the Transportation Safety Board of Canada released their final report. And uh, let's see, the probable causes were the limited field of view to the right of the fuel tanker driver's cab caused by the front elevating service platform and its structural elements, along with the condensation on the windows resulted in the driver being unable to see the aircraft in time to avoid the collision by the way it was dark and it was raining and i think there were some other limitations to visibility it may have been a little foggy as well wow. um, and there was also um 
reflected light that that you know as we know any of us who have gone it well even if you've just driven at night on a rainy night you understand what that means you know when you have lights hitting things that are covered with water sometimes it gets tough yeah. to kind of see where you're going and such and uh, apparently the the jazz um dash eight didn't see the fuel truck at all until it oh, hit them and it spun the thing around. Remember, you remember we were talking about this. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think Rick, you were with us at the time. I remember when we were talking talk- about it. Definitely. Yeah, we were trying to figure out because we we saw the airplane and in, in the way it was positioned in relation to the fuel truck, and we're going, ah, I don't how understand that how happen? that happened. So yeah. it basically tw- turned it around 120 degrees and, um, oh, wow. and it hit the nose to begin with, and I think the the tail swung around and hit the fuel truck on the other side. So it was kind yeah. of weird. It was a uh, it was pretty significant impact it was. was the uh was the uh the driver of the truck was his name murphy at all or uh... <laughs> yeah <laughs> captain murphy um yeah murphy's law right uh Man. he um i don't think the truck driver uh received any injuries i think he was okay um but anyway um so so I'm going to read from the the second news article from nationalpost.com because they kind of summarize this pretty well. Panic passengers ignoring safety instructions in a mad scramble out of a plane after it collided with a fuel truck near the runway of Toronto Airport caused many of the resulting crash injuries, the Transportation Safety Board found. Uh, collision last year between a jazz passenger plane and a truck after landing at Pearson. Um, 15 people were injured. Okay, so I was reading before from the narrative uh, just right after the, the incident, so apparently there were more. Some lawyers probably contacted them. Um, many of them because frenzied and fearful passengers disregarded direct instructions from the crew as well as safety signs, even threatening the lone flight attendant. Um, apparently, with a full load of passengers, 50 passengers plus a couple of lap children, I think three, so there were 53 passengers back there, and uh, there was only a requirement to have one flight attendant. Can you believe <laughs> that would have been tough, you know, especially in this situation where you're the only one and the, the passengers are disregarding your your instructions and they're basically getting hysterical in the back of the airplane. And many of them uh, in self-initiated um, evacuations while the runway, the uh, engines were still running. Oh, geez. Yeah. So it's really kind of a mir- a little minor miracle that nobody ran into one so of the probably. propellers out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, two passengers were hurt. Oh, let's see. One woman was injured uh, because she removed her seatbelt and stood before the crash, even though the seatbelt light was still on. And she was told by a flight attendant to buckle up. She was thrown to the floor in the crash and lay blocking an emergency exit. So folks out there, if you're traveling and the airplane's still, you're not at the gate, don't get up. Because something like this could happen. And even if you think you're at the gate, you might not be at the gate. That's right. Keep your seatbelt on. Yep. Like if the aircraft comes to a stop for a while. Yeah. You know, maybe open that window shade. What? Next to the window. Open a window shade? What are you talking about, Steph? I know. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Who who does that? I don't know, buddy. (laughs) Really. (laughs) Uh, Two passengers were hurt after opening a rear emergency door and jumping directly to the tarmac while the propellers were still spinning. Against safety directions. One passenger threatened the attendant to let him out. Others tried to retrieve carry-on baggage before leaving. Hmm, We never heard that. Causing delays and blocking others, including babies. Uh, Speaking of the babies, I believe that one was um, being held by, uh, or one passenger was holding, I think, two babies. Let me try to find that area here where they talk about that. But uh, one of them went flying out of this person's arms. Uh, The other 
flew out and hit the the seat back in front of them and then fell to the floor. And then I think another one was in some kind of a some kind of a baby carrier and uh I think that baby was okay. Um yeah, it was a mess and you know, people um self-evacuating or not, you know, responding to directions from the flight attendant, threatening the flight attendant and uh, and then finally, you know, grabbing their stuff before getting off the airplane. I think it's, it took like um, more than two minutes, two and a half minutes, I think, or close to three for everyone to get off the airplane. And of course, all this is supposed to happen in 90 seconds or less. Right. Minute and a half, right? Yep. Wow. <laughs> what? Liz, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> she said they should have left the babies behind. <laughs> Oh, that's not good. Um, okay. I think Liz is going to be on this part of the show. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So that's the final report. Uh, pretty much mostly passengers screwed up. The The pilot really wasn't faulted because it was hard for him to see. And the, they really didn't give the fuel truck operator much, much of much blame either. It was like one of those freak accidents where they couldn't see very well. And yeah. So there you have it. Well, I was, uh, that's actually happened to me. Well, not, not, not that bad. Oh, one, really? one day, one, oh, day we were, one day we were flying from, uh, from Sao Paulo to Rio de Janeiro. And then from there, I think we were going to, uh, may have been Miami. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And we were, um, we landed in Rio and, uh, we were, we we're going to, you know, have the, uh, the fuel truck come out and refuel us. And I was, you know, it was, it was my leg up to wherever it is we were going. And I was in the, uh, you know, I was in the flight deck, you know, loading up the FMC, the, the, the flight management system and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> all of a sudden, I feel the airplane shake, you know, more than usual because one of these freighter airplanes, sometimes when they're loaded and unloaded, they shake because the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the unit load devices kind of slam against the, the support, uh, the, 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 the floor supports, the cargo supports uh, along the floor of the, of the jet. And so that makes the plane, you know, you know shake and buckle a little bit but this thing was more than it than i'd ever felt before and i'm like well you know they're guess they're having fun loading this thing <laughs> so i went back down to you know load the fmc and then um uh the other fo that was with me he pokes his head into the flight deck and he goes how'd you like to lay over in rio de janeiro i'm like yeah that'd be great. Well, why what happened, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, the, the truck ran into the engine Mm. So the, uh, he was backing in to uh, go on underneath the uh, wing to uh, you know to hook up with the uh, fuel receptacle under the wing there, and he miss uh, he misjudged the distance from uh, you know the back of his truck to the engine and he hit it. Just keep and backing he, up until it sounds expensive. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he poked the hole right through the uh, through the translating sleeve of the, of the uh, thrust reverser, and that was it. Well, I it can't was, cost uh, very much. No, it was uh, it was a. Uh, it was very, very costly. And I tell you, it's one of those things where, you know, we, we all go downstairs to see what the heck happened. And then people slowly, but surely start showing up, you know, the, oh, yeah. uh, come, the come truck operator, me. he's got his, his, you know, he's got his head in his hands like this. I'd be running away, away. run away. Goodness, I lost my job. <laughs> and then everybody starts showing up from the, from the fuelers, uh, like, you know, the, the, the fueling company, airport, uh, airport mm. personnel, uh, airline personnel. And at the end, you know, 20 minutes into that, we had a, it was it was it was a group of people taking pictures and documenting and stuff, and we were going, "Well, wow. where are we going to go for dinner?" Yeah, 
So, um, <laughs> anyone want a beer? <laughs> exactly. It was, it was, it was, it was sad, but it was one of those, uh, oh, happy man. accidents. So, uh, yeah, hey, not, not as bad as this though. No, no. Yeah. Luckily, much no, less, uh, doesn't sound like anybody severe. was injured on, on no. your particular. No, 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 not at all. Oh boy. Oh, well, um, the next item here is now Rick. Yes. Sir. Uh, a, um, an, uh, well, this is not the company you fly for, but it's very similar. Um, it's Atlas Airlines, uh, a 767 that was taking off out of um, Hawaii and mm-hmm. on a military charter flight. And uh, Liz, if we have some video, and I believe that uh, we can still continue to talk over it. Yeah. Uh, so looks like some kind of a Halloween house of horrors or something going on here. Uh, there's some video of um, the window um, just aft of the right wing, and you can see it's pitch black. And then all of a sudden, the whole interior of the cabin seems to be lighting up because there is um, fire. Ah! It's uh, oh, here. Wait, I forgot to play the uh, suspense music. Well, they can't run for their lives. They're stuck in an airplane. <laughs> but uh, let's see. Uh, this uh, says here from the abc7news.com, terrifying video captured by an airline passenger shows what appears to be flames outside of the cabin as the plane's pilot makes an emergency landing. The video was recorded aboard a military charter flight as its engine reportedly caught fire after taking off from Honolulu, Hawaii, Saturday night. Minutes after leaving Hickam Air Force Base, the pilot declared an emergency engine failure and safely returned to the airfield. The Air Force Control audio revealed. The passenger video shows a pitch-black cabin before a flash of light is seen from outside the window and a muffled explosion sound is heard. And I'm thinking, this sounds a lot like compressor stalls to me. And uh, apparently that's that's what happened so i'm sure that they now if you look at the comments from um i also have some information from the aviation herald and you know people armchair pilots like to get in there and make really uh you know intelligent comments not at all and um i was looking through here with uh interest because i noticed that one of the commenters uh goes by um miami dick my alter ego and i was thinking huh was that you rick did no, you did you no. make these comments i don't think so no, because no, it was. miami dick and i understand the reason why he's calling himself that is because he seems to be that his last name uh quite, he goes, quite, quite the d huh wrong checklist mm-hmm. go back to the sim <laughs> so in the article uh simon and i don't know how he knows what kind of checklist they ran but in the narrative of the aviation herald article he says that the crew declared an emergency on tower frequency and sub- subsequently remained on tower reported a right hand engine cf6 failure due to repeated engine surges compressor stalls with engine emitting bangs and streaks of flame and they did the severe engine damage checklist and shut the engine down so maybe could you Tell us what you think is going on with this whole situation. So, so that, that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't. I honestly don't understand how where where Simon gets you know or where where he picked up you know what checklist was 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 done in this situation. But uh, anyway, the the what people don't seem to understand or, or realize here is that this is if there's a maneuver that we practice, this is the one. You know, yep. whether it's during a a annual check ride or or uh recurrency training um 
uh, proficiency check writer recurrency training this is this is done over and over and over and over especially in one of these you know twin engineer points and so um there there are basically two checklists that deal uh, directly with this kind of issue one is being one is the uh, engine fire severe damage or separation and the other one is engine engine uh I uh, actually had it here. Uh, surge or stall. Mm-hmm. Uh, hang on a minute. The, the actual name of the checklist is uh, engine limit surge or stall. And they so, probably started with that yeah, one, I would imagine. Yeah, but you know the the main difference between the two is that in engine severe damage separation, obviously the engine has severe damage. And how do you how do you know or how can you how can you tell that the engine has severe damages? So you look at your engine instrumentation, and if you have a lack of information from your uh, your N1 or your low compressor um, section of the of, of the engine, your N2 or high compressor uh, section of the engine, or loss of uh, oil pressure or oil information altogether, then you can assume that the engine is seized up, and so the engine has severe damage. Mm-hmm. The engine failures, uh, the engine uh, uh, limit surge or stall is it's just it's just that a compressor stall, and really all a compressor stall is is that the linear flow going through the uh, in, in the front of the engine through the compressor section of the engine and out the back that that flow has been disrupted somehow, and so you no longer have smooth flow of, of air through the compressor to the combustion chamber and out the turbine. And so the engine is, it's, it's, it's like it has, uh, you know, the, the hiccups. So the, the idea here is to try to reduce power to the engine to a point where the flow of air stabilizes and you're able to recover that engine. Well, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to recover it altogether, but the idea here is to try to bring it back so as to maintain the systems associated to the, to that engine online. I'm talking about, you know, hydraulics, electrics, and air. Mm-hmm. Now, if the engine is broken, then you obviously have to shut it down. Now, um, having you know gone through this very scenario countless, countless times, um, and you know keeping in mind that there's a certain degree of startle factor, uh, I think that the crew uh, ran the correct uh, checklist because otherwise they wouldn't have done it. Right. Um, and so yeah, they, they could probably see things that obviously you can't see when you're looking on the, um, internet at a web page <laughs> or just at, you know, YouTube video on vertical, like vertical video out of window yeah. in the dark. Oh yeah. I can tell exactly what's happening. Helpful. Yeah. I don't need to see the engine instruments. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so, so that's why it's like if people, if, 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 come on, if, people. You don't know what, if you don't know what's going on, then come on, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't don't impugn the characters of, of, of the guys that actually you know, know had to deal with this emergency firsthand because it's it's just it's just not it's just not right. So I think I think these guys did a fantastic job. Uh, they got the yeah. you know, situation under control. They shut the engine down. They secured the engine. They started the APU uh, so that they could have. Just, the, the thing here is that, as I said, when you shut the engine down, then you are giving up electrics, hydraulics, and pneumatics for that engine. So you have to make up for that using the auxiliary power unit, which is necessary for uh, ETOPS or uh, extended twin engine operations over a long you know, spaces of water. You know, ETOPS mm-hmm. flies out. You need an APU. So uh, that's going to be online for you. So mm-hmm. you just turn that on and you know, you're back to having two generators. And the only thing you have to do really is uh, do a normal landing with flaps 20 um, 
And the reason why you use flaps 20 is because that's uh, in case you need to go around, you know, you go from, from flaps 20 to flaps five instead of going, you know, from, from landing flap to flap. But anyway, just, just the lower flap setting because mm-hmm. you need to come in a little bit faster. A um, little bit of rudder, you know, for that dissimilar yaw, which I think, uh, dissimilar thrust, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later on. And mm-hmm. uh, just, just just land it normally. No, you know, no big deal. It's, it's just another day. It is. I think they did a great job. And Absolutely. by the way, Hickam Air Force Base is Honolulu International Airport. It's just a little area off of the, you know, the runways that they're landing on and taking off on are shared with Hickam. I mean, uh, with uh Honolulu International Airport. I just think it's funny sometimes reading these journalists things, you know, they make it sound like it was an Air Force base that they took off from. Well, yeah, sort of. They share it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you, Rick, for informing us of uh, what was going on in the cockpit, as far as we can tell. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Because I know you weren't there. At least that's what you're claiming. All right. Let's go with some feedback. Timely feedback. <laughs> Incoming message. <laughs> Number nine. Okay. Uh, oh, you want to tackle huh? this one? So I'm, I'm thinking uh, now, I've never seen this before. Um, this was sent in by Greg Peterson from the Big Ass Fan Company. Good morning, crew. I was listening to episode 440 on the way to work this morning, and I have a question. Not being a pilot, I was wondering why the left engine is considered the critical engine on the King Air in the first story. And I don't know. Um, I don't know anything about this stuff. So I'm going to let the other two hosts that are here on part two uh, cover this for the very first time that we've ever attempted to answer this definitely, feedback. Definitely. Yeah. Story and we're sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, trust that's me. That's yeah. that's the truth. Yeah. Um, so what I'm actually going to do, and yeah. I don't know, just get just get those rickets ready because I'm sure I'll start Uh-oh. off here and Rick's okay. going to jump in and it's just going to this is going to oh, take boy. a long time. Because oh, I'm actually going to back up and I'm going to talk about a few things that we need to know about first to really okay. talk about um you know, a little more complex when you got two engines. So oh, school us, Steph. School just us. One engine first. So, you're thinking about propeller driven aircraft. Um, the majority, or basically all, are going to be rotating clockwise if you're viewing it from the cockpit. Okay. That's important. So, what's happening? You know, you've got your propeller on the, as you're viewing it, on the left side coming up, going down on the right. Um, so, what it's doing, it's taking a bigger bite of the air on the downward side. So you're getting increased thrust, which actually creates more of a yawing tendency to the left. So more thrust on that right side as you're doing it turns everything to the left. Um, so this also creates a little bit of increased lift on the right wing and a banking tendency to the left. So, um, let's see what else you want to say about, uh, about that. So that's um, P factor, a propeller factor. And there's a whole bunch of other things that are going to make a propeller-driven aircraft want to turn to the left. Uh, three more, actually. So the second one would be torque effect. So again, you get that clockwise spinning. So the propeller is going this direction. And then, you guys still hear me? It just got really quiet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Clockwise spinning. So think about kind of if you were winding it up with a rubber band. The aircraft that's attached to that is going to roll in the opposite direction. So left turning tendency. Uh, a couple more that are um, maybe a little bit more difficult to wrap your head around, but spiral, spiraling slipstream. So you have air that's spiral, 
I can't say spiraling. That's really hard. Spiraling. Spiraling around the aircraft that's coming off of the propeller. So if you think about the plane moving forward, you've got air coming off the propeller, moving backwards, spiraling around the aircraft. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually going to push on the back of the tail and drive the nose of the aircraft to the left from the way that the air is coming around the aircraft. And then there's another one, gyroscopic precession, and I should probably just skip over this a little bit. It's a little more um, noticeable in tailwheel aircraft, and it has to do with the propeller being basically a big spinning disc. So as you lift the um, tail up in that tailwheel aircraft, you're basically applying a force to the front of the propeller. Um, But because it's acting like a gyroscope, the definition of gyroscopic precession is that that force is going to actually be applied 90 degrees in the direction of... The you know, it would be helpful if you had a gyroscope with you in your room, and then you kind of... And it could you you get know, like a hula hoop like or something. Yeah. 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 You don't have that? So No, but you're just going to have to trust me on this, that okay. 90 degrees, you're going to feel the force from the right, in this case, because of the spinning you. left turning. Okay. Gotcha. So, a lot of left turning tendencies here on a propeller-driven uh, aircraft, or at least one that's rotating clockwise. Okay. So... Let's add in a second engine. So now you don't have the propeller directly in front of the aircraft. You have them offset to either side, obviously. Uh, Well, most cases. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that anyway. So light twins. So let's go back to that very first one, P-factor. So think about P-factor. You've got the... Do you want me to talk about Do you want to jump in? No, I don't. Do you want to jump in? You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Liz. Liz is telling me to shut up. (laughs) <laughs> so again that's that increased amount of uh the descending blade having the longer or let's go back to just p factor for a second and the decreasing uh, sorry the descending blade takes the bigger bite of air so you have increased thrust so you have that left turning yaw tendency so um if you think about the engine being on the if you're looking towards the front on the right versus on the left um on the right side uh, sorry yeah on the right side as those propellers are going clockwise, the arm is longer on that right side. So it's actually going to create that thrust farther away from the center of the aircraft. And that actually creates a quicker turning effect. So going back to Greg's question, why is the left engine critical? If you um, lose your left engine and you just have that right one spinning, because of that quicker turning tendency, you're going to feel that a lot more than if it were the opposite way opposite way around if you had your left engine still turning and your right one was uh the inoperative or the uh dead engine you wouldn't have as quick of a turning motion um let's see so that's p factor anything else i want to say about p factor let's go next to torque um so again that's that re the force where you have your propellers turning and your aircraft wants to spin in the opposite direction of the spin so the effect is that you get a roll to the left, and it's same reason, more pronounced on the right side, again, because of the longer arm of that motion. Uh, we can talk about spiral. spiral I'm never going to say that right tonight. Spiral, <laughs> Let's don't talk about that because it's too hard to say the word. <laughs> spiraling slipstream. <laughs> spiraling strip slipstream. I'm just going to pretend like I can say it correctly. Uh, well, well you know, I'll fix it in post. I'll put in, no, you, you know, perfect pronunciation of it. Definitely not going to fix it in post. <laughs> uh, let's talk about actually if the left engine is is running in this case. So um, what's happening is that that actually increases rudder effectiveness because of the way that the, uh, it'd be easier if we had like a diagram or a video or something, but 
you think about the air coming off of the propellers towards the back of the aircraft, from the left side, it actually increases rudder effectiveness. So if you reduce or remove that, if the left engine is inoperative, uh, you don't have that stabilizing effect if it's just the right side um, that's functioning. And then we're going to talk about one slightly different factor. We're not going to talk about gyroscopic recession because that's not as important here, but Aww. accelerated slipstream. I still can't say slipstream. <laughs> um, which is kind of similar to the spiraling slipstream, but it's still um, because of the airflow moving backwards over the aircraft, it's going to um, give you more rudder effectiveness if the left engine is turning still as opposed to the right engine. So that is, in a nutshell, all of the reasons why uh, the left engine is considered the critical engine. We're talking about if the le left engine is the one that fails or is not functioning appropriately. I agree completely. So yes, so yeah. So basically, you know, that's, that's exactly right. So basically, really, what we're talking about here is is um, going going down to going down basics here. Is you're, you're you're basically talking about the the length of the arms, and it and it's your standard second class lever where the the fulcrum or the pivot is the vertical axis of the airplane, right? Where the airplane yaws left or right. Um, but the force applied is the downgoing blade, because that's the that's the blade that takes the bite into the air that produces that forward thrust, and then the arm uh, between the pivot or the fulcrum to the downgoing blade uh, on the right side is longer because the downgoing the downgoing blade on the, the right engine is further away from the center of the aircraft than the downgoing blade on the left side. Right, so the uh, the, the the arm moment on the left side is shorter than the arm moment on the right side and so since you have a longer arm moment if you lose that left engine the amount of rudder required to maintain that directional control is greater making that engine critical so anytime you talk about critical engine you're really talking about the amount of rudder uh, required to maintain directional control based on that dissimilar thrust and why that is important is because the rudder really is a wing. And by deflecting the rudder, all you're really doing is you're creating sideways lift. And anytime you create lift, you create drag. And so the more rudder you put in to maintain that directional control, the more lift you create, but then you create more drag as well. And you find yourself now with only one engine. So it's kind of a balancing act, which is why it's so important that if you lose an engine, you maintain um, at least that uh that uh it's it's called um uh what was it so we yeah. we threw out a couple other terms when we were talking about yeah. the, the feedback no, originally vmc that's what it VM, was. there's vmc and vyse exactly actually, so, so but exactly right so that yeah. that that red line that red uh a radial line in your on your airspeed indicator that's going to be your vmc line vmc start it stands for velocity minimum uh velocity for minimum Minimum velocity for control. So, so as long as you stay at that line or higher, you were gonna you're gonna have enough rudder to counteract that dissimilar thrust and maintain that directional control. The second you find yourself below that, no matter how much rudder you put in there, as long as the engine remains at full power, you're not gonna have enough rudder to counteract that, and so you're gonna roll over. And it's it's actually one of those things where. Um, as, as, as a, as a, uh, student pilot, getting your, your, um, your, uh, multi-engine rating, you actually go through what's called a VMC demo 
where you get very, very close to that VMC condition uh, and you are taught how to uh, recover from that. And the way to recover from that is by reducing power to the engine that's working and increasing that airspeed above that red line to give you that, uh, that, that margin of safety and that uh, airflow across the rudder back there to allow you to uh, stabilize your flight path and have enough rudder authority to maintain directional control. So really, as, 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 a, as we were saying, really, uh, when, when you talk about a, uh, a um, critical engine, you're really talking about the amount of rudder required to maintain directional control. Yeah. So I'm they, confused because you guys were talking red lines, and I thought we were talking about blue lines the other day. Are you doing? We were that on talking purpose? about blue lines. No. Nope, are they different? Are they different lines? lines? They are different lines. Uh, so blue shoot. line is your um, single engine best rate of climb uh, airspeed indicator. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're looking at your airspeed gauge on if you're flying a light twin, you've got a red line, blue line. Um, so that's. You know, for practical purposes, you really want to accelerate to that speed before you leave the runway environment in most light twins. Um, because, so think about this, you know, you think um, if you lose an engine, but you've got two engines, so you're just decreasing your performance by 50%, right? Nope. No. No, it's worse nope. than that, right? It's like 80%. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's significant impact on your climb performance. And um, I forget what the the exact FAR is for it, but if the aircraft is less than 12,500 pounds, mm-hmm. they're actually not required to have single engine takeoff and approach climb capability. Hmm. It's a fair so, 25. 25? 25? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. And you know what? And even, even, uh, even uh, uh, commercial airliners, we, we, have, we have critical engine as well. Uh, not so much in the 7.6 or the 7.7 or the 7.8 or the 7.5, but on the 7.4 you do. Because if you lose an outboard versus an inboard, the amount of rudder required to maintain directional control with an outboard engine out versus an inboard engine now is going to be greater. And so anytime, anytime you need more rudder to maintain directional control, uh, that's going to that's going to me that's going to that's going to you know define what your critical engine uh, is. So really, critical engine amount of rudder. Think of it that way. Okay. So Greg. What do you think? You understand now? You understand what critical engine means? So one other point, um, actually the, uh, so a lot of the training aircraft for multi-engine, initial multi-engine training, they will sometimes have counter-rotating props, mm-hmm. which eliminates ah, that's the need. Cheating. <laughs> that's eliminates like, the whole that's too safe of, to do. Yeah. Come on. That's so no in good. In that case, you have propellers, <laughs> you know, your left one is turning clockwise, right? counterclockwise and that way yeah. you don't have that descending blade further away from mm-hmm. the center exactly line of the right. uh, aircraft on one side versus exactly the other right. the, the, the center of thrust of the of the rotating prop, uh, propeller disc is going to be equidistant to the longitudinal axis of the airplane and op, and by you know default by the, the vertical axis of the airplane which is where uh, the axis over which uh, around which the airplane uh, uh, yaws so correct that uh, that's that's basically it is it Okay for me to play the crickets now? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, excellent job. Thank you very much for taking it. It's not an easy concept to explain. And it's not easy for someone who often gets their rights and lefts confused. I know which one I mean, but I my, yeah. my brain tells my mouth to say the wrong one sometimes. Yeah, I hope that 
When your brain's telling your leg which one? No, 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 that's never confusing. <laughs> okay, I good. do the same thing with east and west too. So if I'm ever giving oh. you directions and it doesn't seem quite right, it's oh, that explains I... a lot. <laughs> now, I just, think, I just I thought you just didn't want me to get to your house. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> actually the case there. So, and, and okay. actually, that, that's that's a good point you bring up there, uh, Jeff and Steffi. Uh, so, how do you know? How do you know? And in, in, in the heat of the moment, uh, what foot? or what rudder to mm-hmm. use. So we have this, uh, this think instrument. About those turning tendencies. Exactly. Yeah. We have this instrument and, and, and the flight deck and it's the, the, the slip and skit indicator, which was, there's, there's several you know, types of designs or, and, uh, and, and, and uh, I guess models to this little instrument, but the, but the, the, the basic gist of it is uh, you have a, a semicircular glass tube filled with fluid with a ball that rests at the bottom of that semicircle with two lines, you know, demarcating what the center point of that, of that uh, tube is. And so if you are uh, yawing one way or another, that ball is going to, you know, go outwards either to the left or to the right. And so if you have the ball going to the left, what you have to do is you have to step, step on the ball. On the so you ball. I know step that on one. Ball, you know? <laughs> step on the ball. Ding. And, and, ding, 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 ding. And center step it on the ball. In. Exactly right. And if it goes to the right, you step on the ball and you center it back in. So that's, that's, that's basically what you do. And then in, in, uh, in, um, in propeller driven airplanes, it's always, always a good idea to never ever turn into the dead engine you see we i used to i used to always think of it as raising the dead so basically you raise the dead engine always always raise the dead engine don't ever About turn to the years. into the in, uh, yeah don't ever turn mm-hmm. to the dead engine because you might not be able to you might not be able to to uh, to, uh, to roll it back yeah. out because yeah. remember as Steffi was saying you no longer have that slipstream over the wing providing that added um uh, lavender flow over the aileron to provide that uh that uh, uh, lateral stability, uh, which which you know, if if you if you go into uh, into a bank with a with a dead engine and uh, going going down, you know, the low wing, uh, you're putting yourself in a precarious situation. If you don't have the if you don't have the energy or the speed to pull out of that, um, you know, you, you might not yeah. be able to roll back out. So I see always, a lot of other always, folks, always. a lot of other folks in the chat room using the. Uh, the often taught mnemonic of dead foot, dead engine. You exactly think about right. why everything we just talked about with all those left turning tendencies. So if you're just think about your uh, left engine being uh, the affected engine. So your right engine is producing all of those left turning tendencies. So you're going to have to press on your right rudder to counteract all of that. And you're not going to do much with your left foot. So yeah. yeah. And vice versa. But, and don't forget to trim. Well, uh, yeah, if you, yeah. That's true for all all the time, but it's even crit- more critical in, in this situation, right? Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad that I let you, Steph, and Rick uh, answer this question because, you know, if I did it, I would have looked. I, I, it would have been. It would have been ugly. Yeah, <laughs> you would have you would have tried to to confuse us, probably. No, no, no. It would have been yeah. very, very clear and concise, and everybody yeah. would go, "Wow, that's why he's the airline pilot guy." <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's like you said, it's, you know, I think. So that's the view from this side of the cockpit. No. <laughs> it's something that's tricky to explain, um, you know, without without having a visual on it, I think, because mm-hmm. it, for me, yeah. that's a very visual concept. Um, so it's hard to do on an audio podcast or even, you know, when we're sitting here doing our uh, 
live recording and StreamYard and can see each other. But, you know, I'd like to have the little airplane model and mm-hmm. that helps my brain visualize exactly what's going on. Well, we, Mike, we, is at, Mike is asking, when was the last time I flew a, a, a twin prop aircraft? It's got to be 20 years, coming up on 20 years. And I was it's, thinking uh, about the last, I, I don't, I've never flown a twin engine propeller airplane, uh, only yeah. a single engine. And that was close to 40 years ago. So yeah. that's why. I didn't attempt to answer this question in part two. <laughs> I, got, uh, I got I got my multi-engine rating in a Piper Seminole. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice! Yeah, that's oh, is that one of those things. Those, that's one of those airplanes that's cheating, right? Have the counter rotating? Yeah. No, no, no. No, no the Seminole. No, no. Oh, the Seminole. Oh, the, the oh. Seneca is. I did mine in the ah, Seneca, and it's okay. cheating. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well. Greg, I'm going to see Greg tomorrow uh, at the Ooh. ATL. So I don't know if he is able to hear that great explanation from Steph and Rick, but uh, um, I'll tell him to listen to the show. I'm not going to explain it to him. He'll just have to listen to the show. And yeah, I'm going to, Liz says, just make sure you let him know that he's banned from sending in any further feedback to the show. Call, okay. Colin is saying that some aircraft have, uh, some aircraft have auto rudder boost to act to alleviate rudder loads in the event of an engine failure. And that's mm-hmm. true for triple seven does, know, right? A triple seven uh, has a system called the uh, TAC, the thrust asymmetry computer. So basically, the fly-by-wire system is constantly comparing uh, the N one or, or uh, low pressure low pressure compressor uh, speeds of both the right and the left engine. And anytime there's more than a ten percent difference, the rudder goes in automatically to counteract that. Uh, and the and the cool thing about the 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 triple seven and the seven eight seven really is that uh, it does it both in the air and on the ground. So if the engine fails on the ground on the triple seven, it'll only go in you know to and not even halfway. It'll only go in enough to allow to help the pilot and recognize which engine failed. But on the seven eight seven, it'll go all the way in on the ground and in the air, and you'll and it'll keep you going straight down the runway mm-hmm. until you have a check right, and then at that point they'll do what happened to the this. Uh, aircraft in uh, hawaii that we talked about a severe damage or separation where the engine will completely either separate or the fly-by-wire system will lose the input from the um, uh, thrust management system and it won't be able to compare um n1s anymore and so when that comparison's not uh there the tack will kick off and you're all of a sudden by yourself uh controlling a rudder but the 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 rudder authority on the triple seven is unbelievable because you have to think about the fact that each engine puts out 115,000 pounds of thrust so the um the top of the rudder on the triple seven is is single hinge and the bottom part of the rudder is double hinged so you actually have a lot of rudder authority and Mm. you 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 barely you barely go in you know halfway if that that's basically enough Mm. to to counteract to counteract the similar big rudder big engines yeah all right if you have any more questions about uh Critical engine and P factor and all that kind of stuff. You should probably talk to a CFI. It's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> or look it up on Google. <laughs> An MEI. <laughs> Wikipedia. There you go. Um, there let's, you go. let's quickly move on. Try to knock out at least one more, maybe a couple of uh, more feedback here. Dave sent us this. Um, again, it's mostly for Rick. Uh, he sent it to Rick at Al. Oh. Uh, don't you fly into and out of Narita? If so, have you noticed him? And who's this him of which listener Dave speaks? And he sends a link to a BBC.com um, video, a little mini documentary about this farmer that um, I guess his father 
refused to give up the land on which he was farming that happens to be pretty much right in the middle of the Narita International Airport uh, property. But it's not really technically Narita's property. It's the farmer's property. And uh, his son, um, when his father passed away, came to take over the farm. And they've offered him like lots of money, like close to a couple of million dollars for him to uh, give up the property, but um, he's stubborn and he says, "Nope, I'm gonna continue to farm this land." You know anything about this? Yeah, well, the uh, the that that plot of land was given to the father by the emperor of Japan himself. Oh. So, um, yeah, so he's uh, he's he's not that that's going to be in the family for, for forever, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 quite interesting because it's um so the the what we're talking about here is a little plot of land. That sits on the, I guess, the uh, northeast side of the airport. So as you come in to land on three, four right or one, six left, which is the short runway, usually the runway they use for landings. Um, and as you taxi back, uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll get a, I'll get a snapshot of this and then I'll, I'll send it over to Jeff for the show notes if, if, if he so wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you, as you go down on, on taxiway Bravo and you join taxiway Charlie, there's an open area there where this farm uh th- this farmer lives and it's really funny because uh, as you come out as as i was saying as you taxi down bravo and charlie to join uh you know just enter the main um uh, airport complex there there's this big sign that says down with narita and um okay he makes his, uh yeah he makes his feelings uh very very well known okay you know, he doesn't mince, he doesn't mince words uh the guy mm-hmm. and uh yeah, you know i i just i respect that and it's his land and and it is what it is but i'll tell you what i mean it's uh if there ever was a plot of land for a nav geek that is it oh yeah oh because just it's just the uh the amount of traffic and the kind of airplanes that you see landing there all the time. And, and especially when it gets a little bit windy, uh, it's, uh, I tell you, I'd have a, uh, I'd have a terrace up there and, uh, you know, just, just chairs and hammocks and beer kegs and we'd have a good time. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Liz was thinking, why don't, why doesn't this guy rent it out, um, to all of us for an APG meetup over there? Um, can you imagine? Ooh, that'd be fun. Oh, there he yeah. is. Okay, here, let me get that. It's probably too small. So, kind of tiny. Yeah, let me. Uh, yeah, that's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> here we go again. Um, <laughs> let's see. Oh, no. Oh, well, I guess that's as large as we can get it. I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tragic. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. But uh, there you go. There's a little, the little man. There's the little man. <laughs> it's a sad situation. <laughs> It's a sad situation. Uh, I can see if I can find that. Here we go. It's sad. It's sad. <laughs> it's been a while since I played that one. Anyway, so it's a. I watched the uh, little. It's maybe what uh, ten or fifteen minutes long. It's not a long um, video uh, regarding this little mini documentary about the guy. So check it out in the show notes. Oh yeah. Now we were talking about. Was it? Liz, was it last episode or the episode before? I think it was the last episode ah. that we were talking about the um, company Island Helicopters, I believe. The one, uh, the owner but, of the air, uh, the uh, helicopter that had Kobe Bryant on board and crashed in Southern mm-hmm. California. And uh, the fact that uh, they were um, basically 
I think suing counter suing, yeah, counter suing the ATC because mm-hmm. something to do with you know, oh, just for following. allowing the flight to happen, yeah, basically, yeah. you know, they shouldn't have let that happen. So somebody sent in uh, some an anonymous person uh, sent in some feedback regarding this, and this is a um, a trained and pro- you know a professional air traffic controller, and he said, "I just heard your discussion on the Kobe crash." The lawsuit will go nowhere if the FAA has an attorney worth a dollar. The flight following was officially and legally terminated when you hear radar service terminated. The pilot then got a special VFR transition clearance through a Class D. The controller in the tower was not providing flight following, traffic advisories, and safety alerts, but was responsible for ensuring separation with other aircraft. When he exited and went back to approach, he was never re-identified and services were never reinitiated. If he were and radar services were being provided again, the VFR pilot is always responsible for terrain and obstruction clearance in addition to their responsibility to see and avoid other airplanes. The pilot was in over his head and it cost him his life and others. Also worth noting, while the pilot was instrument rated, the helicopter operation was only authorized for VFR flying under Part 135. Filing an IFR flight plan with paying customers was not a legal option under their certificate. I suspect they spent a lot of time pleasing, or they spend a lot of time pleasing high-paying customers and skirting the VMC cloud, that's a visual meteorological condition, cloud clearance and visibility requirements, or VFR actually. Uh, It's a sad day when they try to blame the controller for poor decision-making intentional flight into instrument meteorological conditions and blatant disregard for the safety of their passengers. So that is a controller's point of view regarding this uh, Hmm. countersuit. I, uh, I agree actually. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty black and white there, you know, so, uh, it's really nowhere to get lost. Exactly. Okay. Uh, 15, uh, Ralph sent in this, he says a few questions. Actually, it's only two, uh, as a flight engineer, are you actively monitoring anything during takeoff and landing? I was just thinking of the sideways acceleration and deceleration you would be enduring at that time. And number two on a transoceanic flight, how far out are you when you're out of range of VHF radio and how often do you need to check in? Is it via HF radio or CPDLC these days? Keep up the great podcast, Ralph. So, number one, uh, the flight engineer question. Now, I are there really any airplanes anymore um, that have flight engineers? Um, uh, there are there are a couple of DC maybe like the, right now. oh really okay yeah a couple of DC tens. the Antonov two twenty five Mira or whatever probably oh, does that, and one twenty four that's a that's a whole town that flies those yeah it probably has several <laughs> flight engineers <laughs> like four to seven people <laughs> big crew. But, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. But, uh, but on, on, you know, just Western, Western made aircraft. Uh, uh, yeah, but you still have, like I said, you know, the, the, the odd DC 10 here and there, mm-hmm. and then actually the odd, uh, the odd, uh, seven, four dash 200, um, still oh, around, okay. uh, yeah. not that many, not that many anymore, but, um, the, the, so the flight engineer doing takeoff and landing, believe it or not, he's able to pivot his seat yep. and, uh, sit and slide between it the, kind of diagonally. Yeah, exactly slide it diagonally and, and actually sit right at the foot of the center pedestal and um the flight engineer is is crucial in uh in uh the takeoff uh portion of the flight because he is the one that sets takeoff thrust and so if you if you look at old 747 uh 
uh, throttle quadrants, you'll see that. Uh, so you have your the, the the thrust levers. You have the the you know the the top portion, which is where the what the pilots use. Obviously, the the very front of it's where the reverse thrust levers are, and then at the very back end of the uh, thrust levers, there's there's a set for the flight engineer, which extend aft, and that's what the flight engineer uses uh, to to set power. And so yeah, during the takeoff run, he's not he's not. Uh, He's not, uh, you know, going down the runway sideways. As a, yeah, he's facing as, straight ahead. It looks like he's like basically in a jump seat between the pilot and the co-pilot. And he's looking straight ahead, looking at the engine instruments, setting power. Now, I think this is an airline thing. Um, I was a flight engineer at Acme on the 727. We didn't have that kind of throttles uh, layout that you were talking about there, Rick, with the yeah. 7.4. They were just regular throttles. And what mm-hmm. we would do, um, I think that we would end up setting the the throttle so the engineer the flight engineer at acme airlines uh when i was doing the job uh didn't touch the throttles um but uh, he was he or she was monitoring everything and not looking outside and doing anything all the other things that we were doing as pilots in the in the left seat and right seat uh but it's a critical job a lot of things going on but pretty much the panel on the side facing sideways hydraulics electrics fuel uh, air conditioning, that kind of stuff, um, pretty much is set in, in, in a certain way for the takeoff. And then that he can mm-hmm. kind of, as Rick just said, rotate his seat facing forward and kind of slide that track. So it's, he's between he or she is between the two, uh, uh, pilots sitting in the left and right seats. Exactly right. And then the flight engineer really, as, as Jeff said, is, is just basically a, a systems manager. You know, mm-hmm. nowadays we have, a uh, you know, fancy electronic um you know uh, icas engine indicating crew alert and system and uh dark cockpit and uh and, and ecam if you're flying airbus where uh the system just basically uh works itself out and 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 on the newer airplanes really uh like the triple and the 787 um certain systems like the um uh, like the pneumatic system so if, if, if it if the system detects that there's some kind of uh fault or a pneumatic uh, bleed duct leak or anything like that it just basically fixes itself um that's that's how things work now but back in the day that's what the engineer did and it's actually at i've i've, I've talked to many an engineer and one of the things that they were really really proud of really was um uh, being able to sync the um the generator mm-hmm and marry up the generator to the electrical system of the airplane without anybody noticing without making that uh, that uh, that electrical jump. It was difficult That's to that. do. Oh, absolutely. We had I was um Liz and I were talking about this a few days ago and that's one of the things I really remember the most challenging thing. So you're starting engines and uh, the electrical power most often is on the auxiliary power unit, but once in the first engine is started then you're actually turning little knobs, and I and I can't remember if the if you wait and if you adjust everything until the white light is steady, or if it is like blinking, and then you kind of adjust things so either it's completely out or com- completely on. I don't remember which, yeah. and then you'd actually hit the switch to bring the generator online, and it was very very important that you made sure that it was in sync with the auxiliary power unit generator because if you screwed that up, it would just completely <laughs> Pump all the power, and then exactly. you have a big. You could actually damage the um, the, uh, the what is it called the um, constant speed drive, the CSD, oh. and the uh, generator if you did it wrong. So, and then we have you know three engines. So every, every time you start an engine, you have to 
again, you're tweaking the little knob and making sure that the light's on or out, uh, whichever, and then hitting the switch at the right time. And as Rick mentioned that uh, if you're really good at it and you've been doing it for a while, you can almost do it the way that most modern airplanes now do it automatically. Uh, where you and that's the thing. Even, we, just, you know. we just take it for granted. You know, it's, yep. just, it's, it's funny. You, you start an engine and at 50% N2, uh, the, uh, the uh, APU automatically disconnects. And the generator takes over, and you don't even notice it. And it's mm-hmm. it, it's hard because you don't. I mean, you, when when you talk about um, uh, power generation in an airplane, you're talking about not only the voltage required to run the systems, but you're also talking about the frequency. So 400 hertz. So you have to marry up the 400 hertz from the so from the from the uh, generator to the 400 hertz from the APU, and disconnect them just the right way, and then marry up those 400 hertz to the electrical system and, and marry that up, just trying to make it as seamless as possible. And I, I don't know how you guys did it back then. It's just like, <laughs> you know, my, my hat's off. Pure magic. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, those, and those are the things that really just, uh, wow. You know, you take that for granted now and you go, man, I mean, we, we have it easy compared to. Like, yeah. But you know, you, you're trained on it and everybody, you know, every, everybody can figure out how to do it. It's not that difficult, but yeah. these days it's so much nicer. This is good advice. I should go get one of those. My flight engineer only has one job. Open the beers. <laughs> Brent. <laughs> hey, Brent. Yeah. Good to have it. It's been a long time. No see. That's awesome. Exactly. All good right. Yeah. Um, that's true. That's, sure. That was the main job of the flight engineer. The second part of the question, uh, Rick, you're, I believe, most qualified to answer. Uh, I just lost it here. Let me see. So it was Transoceanic flight. Yeah, Oh, transoceanic flights. Oh, how far out are you when you are out of range? Um, so uh, VHF is uh, the very high frequency. So uh, it's basically line of sight. Obviously, the higher you are, the more reach you have. But you're talking about eh, about between 200 to 250 miles, perhaps something something in that range. And usually, what I do uh, when you're coasting in um, at the end of an oceanic uh, crossing. Uh, you'll usually start seeing the green needles or the VOR needles start pointing at 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 a at uh, at a ground station, and so when I see that needle uh, wake up, and then I see the DME, so the at uh, the distance measuring equipment uh, readout on on my RDM my, uh, my radio magnetic indicator or up on the, on the screen on my navigation display, I know okay the VOR is picking up a signal. I get a, a DME readout, so uh, that's VHF as well at the site. So it's, it's, it's very possible that I'll be able to contact a, uh, some kind of a, a ground-based uh, ATC controller down there. And usually, you know, it works out. Uh, as far as um, HF, uh, we do use HF every once in a while, although nowadays uh, CPDLC is required. Uh, CPDLC stands for Controller Pilot Direct Link Communication. And that's required equipment uh, on, uh, on uh, Oceanic, uh, on, the, on the NATS, on the North Atlantic Track System. Uh, required between 2941, 290, and 410, kind of like RVSM, the exact same levels. And you're not allowed um, um, to fly in that airspace uh, without it. Um, no, actually, let me see here. I believe CPDLC is required from 35 and up. Somebody's going to somebody's gonna um, fact check me on that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it's from 35 and up because I know that if you don't have CPDLC, you can fly under that under that level and you're still legal to fly in the, in the North Atlantic correct system. But still, the beauty of CPDLC is that um, you're in constant communication. So the aircraft is in, is in constant communication with, um, 
what's called an ATSU. It's an air traffic uh, air traffic service unit, and uh, the ATSU is going to uh, interrogate the aircraft, and the aircraft is going to pass on information to the ATSU automatically. And you don't have to do anything. So all you really do is you log on to CPDLC to the ATSU to the uh, air traffic control facility. And when it comes time to switch from, say, Gander to Shanwick, the switch is automatic. You get an automated automated message letting you know that you are now in CPDLC contact with Shanwick, and you are, and uh, the controller will give you a will send you a message with a with an HF frequency and do an HF uh, radio check, a cell call check, selective call check. Uh, you'll call him. Uh, he'll call you on cell call. The dinger will go off, and then you know that your HF radio and your cell call is working, and that's the last you'll use the HF for the night. So the entire oh, thing so nice. is you'll see, you'll see, it's a beautiful thing. Not like the old days when I was flying the 141 across the Pacific and Atlantic and Indian Ocean when we had the HF radio on all oh, yeah. flight. Listening oh, I, I got the experience. I got the experience some of that too. It was, <laughs> That's uh, awful. We, we didn't even have Selco on ours, right. so it's uh, yeah. on the old seven six days. Oh man, <laughs> didn't either. Yeah, that's probably. 50% of why I have, uh, or 50% of my hearing loss can be attributed to listening to the HF radio. <sighs> anyway, great questions, Ralph. Thank you for uh, for that. And it looks like, unfortunately, we're out of time for part two. We have still a lot of feedback from y'all that we'll have to uh, move over to the next episode. And uh, yeah, so uh, in, in the meantime, if you want to learn more, if you're new to the APG and you want to learn more about the community and the crew and uh, plane tales, a little bit more information regarding the plane tales that uh, Nick prepares um, and uh, that's a separate page on the on the website uh, we have the APG library uh, our librarian Tiffany takes care of that for us, merchandise information about the coffee fund if you want to be a financial supporter of the show um, and again that's uh, airlinepilotguy.com the website and we are on the social means as well we are. Check us out on Twitter. We're at APG Crew. You can also head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And I haven't done anything with Instagram recently, but one of these days I'll get, get back to it. We're also at APG Crew there. Um, we'll see you on the social meets. Excellent. And we're also on Slack. And let's see uh, if Hillel is able to. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. He's always in the show. Hey, Hillel. Hillel, come on. It's Slack time. Well, that sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or... Send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Appreciate it. Fire in the hole. <laughs> okay. Watch out. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, let's see. We'd also like to thank our producer director in Toronto, Ontario. Ontario, Ontario, Canada. I thought I was going to get it right Canadia. this time this week. Canadia, Canadavia. <laughs> Her name is Liz. Thank you, Liz. Yay. You're awesome. I think I lost the uh, 
the back channel feed. So, uh, but I see you there still in our in our video feed. So, uh, thank you very much for all of your help. We do certainly appreciate that. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you next time, and hopefully, no crosswinds. Day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy I fly over